host, Jesse Wiest. Thank you for listening. Before we get started, I've got a quick promo for another great podcast. It's called Deep Into History, um, and I just want to say that the host for that show, Arjun, is a fantastic storyteller. Anyway, here is the promo for that show. After my first few episodes, some of my newfound fans called me a lore master, which was an honor and so epically cool. But the thing is, I desire to be known as the lore master. So, this is the tale of the rise of an epic podcast that critics say is redefining a genre. The tale of a man who decided that his calling in life was to give a future to the past. The saga of Arjun, your lore master. Come dream with me as we go deep into our stories. If you think you've been taken to a battlefield before, I assure you, you're mistaken. So take a deep breath, let it out slowly, put some smoke in the air if you choose, and prepare to let your mind flow to my voice as we go deep. Welcome to Deep Into History, available everywhere. All right, I really appreciate you listening to that, folks, and for supporting the people who support this show. Uh, and on a related note, um, I need help to produce quality episodes of this uh, podcast faster. There's two really easy ways for you to pitch in to do that. Um, first, if you would take a moment to share, subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, um, especially if you can do that on iTunes, um, that is uh, really tremendously helpful because each written review the podcast gets triggers the algorithms that govern what shows get promoted to uh, future potential listeners. Um, anyway, uh, the more people who take a little bit of time to do that uh, really helps make sure that as many people get to uh, go along this journey through time with us. Um, and if you're finding yourself enjoying uh, this uh, long-form, left-leaning history show starring me, your allegedly hilarious host, then please take a moment to, uh, to just yeah, share, subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, the second way you can help is by going to patreon.com slash Atlantic World and becoming a patron of the show. You can do that for as little as a dollar per month uh, and for the amount of content each episode is. This really kind of amounts to a really just a tiny a bit of money for each, uh, for each episode, and that's some great history. And uh, in addition, uh, I'm really excited to announce that in the next couple of weeks, I'll be uploading the first uh, parts of a new show I'm going to be putting out exclusively for my patrons. Now, I'm not going to get too much into this right here, um, but it's a, basically it's a historical uh, fantasy set in a world much like ours, but with magic. It's bizarre. It's ambitious. Uh, it's an idea that I've been tinkering around in my head for years. Uh, now, for now, all you get is the title. The Man Who Killed George Washington. 
But like I said, look for upcoming episodes of that, uh, much shorter episodes um, than this show, mind you, to come out exclusively on the History of the Atlantic World Patreon page. Uh, now, with that said, um, at the end of next episode, I'm going to read a passage from The Man Who Killed George Washington so that you can get a better idea of what it is I'm talking about. And you can judge for yourself uh, my skill at writing fiction. Um, at any rate, eventually I'd like to collect uh, that into a book or a series of books. Anyway, um, on a kind of related note, I'd like to give a special shout out to all the folks who have taken the time to write or message me uh, to say that they enjoy the show. Um, you know, the writing and editing and everything else that comes with creating each episode takes up a lot of time and energy. Uh, I become very obsessed doing the research, uh, and, and, and especially as, as I'm finishing up the writing, I become a little bit of a hermit as a result. And I don't mean to do that, but uh, that's just kind of the way it works when you're writing. Um, and anyway, I don't always probably show how grateful I am that there are people who appreciate uh, what it is I'm doing. So, you know, no, of course, my patrons, uh, Austin, Patricia, Wayne, I mean, wow. I mean, I, I could not do this show without you guys. Uh, and that's why, you know, I'm going to give you guys as a reward a, a kind of a sneak peek at the upcoming project I'm working on. And, and, and also to my cousin Rick, who helped make this episode possible uh, specifically. And I'm going to have to figure out uh, a way to get uh, you, the, the man who killed George Washington, so you can check it out also. But, um, you know, this show isn't always about just making money. Let me tell you, when a listener takes the time to write a comment or message me, it means an awful lot. And off the top of my head, I, I, I'd just like to say thank you to some people that I remember uh, doing that. Uh, Don, uh, James, Jamie, Lori, Chris, uh, and Trent. And and, uh, and also especially to anybody else out there who I probably can't remember, but who has told me they've enjoyed the show. Uh, I definitely should have made a list of that. Uh, I'm not always good at showing how appreciative I am uh, to people, uh, especially, you know, when we're not, you know, you know, face to face, it's a lot easier. Uh, but but you get the idea. Uh, it really means a lot to me, and I just want to say thank you. Anyway, as for this episode, the Spanish expansion from Hispaniola onto what they call Tierra Ferme is a complicated jumble of various Spanish conquistadors who attempt to make their fortune on what the Spanish begin calling Tierra Ferme in the early 16th century. Now, we also need to talk about the inhabitants of that place, of uh, the Central American Isthmus and Northern South America. Um, and I also think it's important to talk a little bit specifically about Vasco Nunez de Balboa, whom you've probably heard of. He was the quote-unquote discoverer of the Pacific Ocean. Um, and I mean, he was the epitome of the successful conquistador. He's fucking legit. Anyway... I hopefully, uh, in this episode, I've gonna, done a good job of weaving together all of these threads, but, but, but before we do anything, we need to talk about sources. Now, of course, we'll be using some of the usual suspects, like Carl Ortwin Sowers, the early Spanish main, Samuel Elliott Morris's The European Discovery of America, The Southern Voyages, and Benjamin Keene's Latin American Civilization. Um... For uh, contemporaneous sources of the time, Bartolome de las Casas's The Devastation of the Indies is helpful, but Las Casas did not go to Tierra Firm. He went to the Caribbean. And so the real expert here is Fernandez de Oviedo, 
who came to Central America on the expedition of Pedrarius. More on him later. Uh, anyway, Oviedo's Chronicle of America is thus extremely helpful. Now, in addition, the Italian chronicler, Peter Martyr, did not go to the Americas, but he interviewed a lot of people who did, and his De Orb Novo, books two and three, were very important to this episode. Uh, new to our list of sources uh, that I haven't used for previous episodes anyway is Manuel Jose Quintana's book, The Life of Vasco Nunez de Balboa, which is um, an absolutely fawning 18th century biography of Balboa, and which helps really helps color in for us some of his exploits in the Americas. Um, because, you know, there's a lot of sources that are the primary sources that we don't really have access to because, uh, I mean, they're in Spanish. I don't, I don't read Spanish, uh, especially not 15th century Spanish. Balboa was an amazing soldier and conquistador and a natural leader of men. In addition, he owned a war dog that people wrote about. Now, you probably think you've got a good dog, that your dog is a very good boy or girl. But from all accounts, Vasco Núñez de Balboa had the best boy. Oviedo tells us the dog's name was Leonciso, and in the course of the conquests with Balboa, quote, this dog gained his master more than 2,000 pesos of gold because he received the share of a companion in the distribution of golden slaves. And truly, the dog deserved it better than many sleeping partners. This dog's instinct was wonderful, he could distinguish between the warlike or peaceful Indian, and when the Spaniards were taking or pursuing Indians, unloosing this animal and saying, there he is, seek him, he would commence the chase, and had so fine a scent that they scarcely escaped him. When he had overtaken his subject, if the Indian remained quiet, he would take him by the sleeve or hand and lead him gently, without biting or annoying him. But if he resisted, he would tear him to pieces. Ten Christians escorted by this dog were in more security than twenty without him. He was of a red color, had a black nose, was of a middle size, and not handsomely formed, but stout and powerful, exhibiting many wounds, which in the course of these wars he had received from the Indians. Unquote. Leonciso was a finely trained dog, a tool, as much as he was a pet. People are the same. We are many things. One of them is a tool. Unfortunately for Leonciso, he was killed eventually. Quote, at last, maliciously poisoned, unquote. I do not know, nor did Oviedo write, if he knew, from uh, who poisoned Leonciso. Perhaps it was the Indians of Tierra Firm. Many of them used poison arrows. But perhaps it was a man named Pedrarius, the man who became governor after Balboa, a butcher who installed a murderous regime on Tierra Firm, much like Nicolas de Ovando did at Hispaniola that we discussed last episode. We begin this episode, then, with the question, I mean, what sort of a man kills a dog, you might ask? Well, for what it's worth, I don't really have any evidence at all, that Pedrarius poisoned Balboa's dog, Leonciso. But I think he was responsible, and I'm going to go ahead and blame him. Or more likely, 
He ordered someone else to do it. By the end of this story, you're going to know what sort of man that Pedrarius was. And you'll see why I you'll you'll see why I think he might have been responsible. Now, with that said, the absolute most important thing for me to do at the start of this episode is to talk about geography. I mean, especially if you're like me, and you got an education in the United States of America. The region of the world we are talking about today is not spoken much in school. In part, that's because some of the nations involved are small both geographically and in population. Uh, and that means these nations with small amounts that have small amounts of power on a global stage. and uh, So they just don't get as much press. But in truth, that hardly explains uh, the entire story of why or how you could end up learning so little about the countries that are your closest neighbors. The reality is that the United States has been intimately involved in the history of Central America, since the 1950s especially. You know, to be perfectly honest, the reason you, like me, might have grown up not learning much about the history of Central America is because the United States government does not want you thinking about Central America at all. Because if you started learning the history of Central America in the 1500s, well, eventually you would make your way to the 20th century. And that is a story of assassinations, secret wars, and anti-democratic Machiavellianism. Now that's, of course, a story for a different day, but suffice to say, as I argued last episode, the conquest of the Americas continues to this day. So, geography. The Caribbean touches the Americas in three places, or nearly so, obviously nearly. In the north, the Bahamas, and part of Cuba are very close to Florida. The western end of Cuba, though, also nearly touches the Yucatan Peninsula, which is right around Cancun, Mexico. The Caribbean stretches out south from there. The Antilles, uh, the chain, arcs down and almost touches South America, where Trinidad and Tobago uh, are within eyesight, essentially, of Venezuela. Today, in this episode, we're going to be speaking about the coastline of the Americas that stretches roughly down from the Yucatan Peninsula in the north, and from there to roughly the part of Venezuela where Trinidad and Tobago nearly touch. Now, this stretch of mainland, combined with the Caribbean, was known by the Spanish in the 16th century as the Spanish Main. But once they realized, uh, that is, that the part of the Spanish Main was just one single piece of land, they kind of, they renamed it Tierra Firm. Now the southern end of the Yucatan Peninsula touches the nations of Guatemala and Belize. If you were to continue south as the crow flies, I suppose, you would, you would get to Honduras and El Salvador, and then next... Nicaragua, Costa Rica, and Panama. But the geography of Panama doesn't stretch from north to south. It instead arcs east to west. And so Panama borders Nicaragua and Costa Rica on its western side, and Colombia on the east. And then you could continue following the coastline east from there. You can go east from Colombia 
and get to Cotton Venezuela's coastline, which then the coastline continues going eastward. And if you were to go along it, you would you would see Trinidad and Tobago uh, before the South American coastline turns south again. I mean, I say all that because it's easy. I think it's it's it, in your head if you're not looking at a map. It's really easy to just think of uh, the Americas. Uh, from the United States as just kind of a straight line going north and south. You know, you go south from Mexico, you get to Central America, you go south from there, you get to uh, South America. And that's not exactly true. Uh, anyway, now Columbus was the first uh, European captain to view Tierra Firm. He did so on his third voyage. The Almirante touched down on the coastline of what is now Venezuela. Near Trinidad and Tobago is the Gulf of Paria. Uh, which was where Columbus was. And from there, he sailed west along the coast of what is now coastal Colombia and Panama, uh, and then turned north uh, with the coast of Central America. Uh, he named what he saw, all of it, Veragua, and eventually, though, turned northeast and back towards the Caribbean. Um, okay, so kind of with that out of the way, um, uh, we also next need to move on to talk a little bit, I think, briefly about the people who lived in these places. Now, technically, uh, even though I speak spoke uh, extensively about Mesoamerican peoples and South American and Caribbean peoples in my episodes entitled Blood Oath and Earthshaker, respectively, in all honesty, I barely scratched the surface, um, especially on this region. In part, that's because before I started those episodes, the Chibchan, who we're going to be speaking about today, were very little known to me. And in part, because they really shouldn't be properly classified as a Mesoamerican or a South American people, because the Chibchan were in some ways both. That's what happens, basically, anyway, when you try to create an episode about the history of an entire continent, is you miss things. Anyway. When I say the Chibchan, what I mean is a macro-cultural group of people that we're going to meet in this episode, and they all spoke various languages, the Chibchan languages, and there were a lot of different groups of them. Many of the people we will meet in this episode will be called uh, Cueva peoples, uh, the Chibchan groups that lived in Panama and Colombia. Um... Uh, Western Colombia, called the Province of Darien by the Spanish. And their ancestors today survive as the uh, Kuna Indians. On the eastern side of Tierra Firm, Veragua to the Spaniards, were a closely related but very different culture than the Cueva. Now, both of them were Chibchan, but while these uh, two groups are the stars of the show today, there are no fewer than 31 Chibchan languages that still exist today. I want to make this clear. Um, and there are three more known to be extinct Chibchan languages. Now, the Spanish, especially in the early years of their expansion and conquest of Tierra Firm, they didn't think of these people as Chibchan at all. I, I want to point that out, too. They were Taino, and thus good, submissive, and willing to trade. Or they were Carib, and thus bad untrustworthy, and willing to engage the Spaniards with violence. So if you're thinking, huh, well, that's going to make things confusing, huh? Well, you're right, because to compound this, 
There are other groups in Central America. There are Carib-speaking uh, populations that exist on the coast, uh, near the Carib-held islands like Trinidad and Tobago especially. Uh, and, and these are kind of, you know, like a, there might be a village of Caribs nearby and, or mixed in uh, amongst other villages of Chibchan, uh, of Chibchan populations. Uh, there are also Arawak communities that were related to but distinct from the Tainos of the uh, Antilles, of the Greater Antilles. Um, there's a lot of uh, smaller islands off the coast of Colombia and Venezuela, and many of these had Arawak uh, chiefdoms on them that, that were similar to the uh, Taino. So at any rate, I say that because there's going to be a lot of unknown about what exactly is going on in Central America at the start of the 16th century. And that's because it's clear that there's a lot of people who were there. Central America was the confluence, a point of confluence of trade routes. One trade route that went up the Pacific side of the Americas from the lands of the Inca and into the Isthmus through the so-called cloud chiefdoms, such as the Muisca of Colombia. That's where some of the most talented metalsmiths in the Americas existed. But trade also went north and west from the Isthmus as well, into Maya and other Mesoamerican uh, areas. Here, merchants traversed in canoes around the Yucatan Peninsula and then uh, up and down the Isthmus to trade. To add into that, there are also Taino and Carib traders coming in off of trade routes off of the Caribbean. Now, the Spanish reduced this kind of complex world that you can, we're getting a glimpse of how complex it was by me describing the trade into Tainos and Caribs. In fact, the conquistadors asserted that the entirety of Veragua was inhabited by Caribs. Now, that's pretty much laughably wrong and has but more to do with the fact that on the eastern side of a place called the Gulf of Uraba and onwards, and the Gulf of Uraba is uh, in western Colombia, uh, the Spaniards were menaced by poisoned missiles, just like that were used by the Caribs. But the truth is that most of the cultures encountered by the Spanish were related and spoke related languages, and they were not Taino or Carib. These were Chibcham nations, who were the dominant people in most of the Central American Isthmus, Colombia, and Venezuela. Chibcham society was similar in structure, though, to Arawak society. Both lived in hereditary hierarchies, and for the Spanish, that meant they were relatively easy to understand. The Spanish called the Chibchan states provinces, and called the head of state a cacique, which is not technically correct since cacique is a Taino word, not a Chibchan word, but it was close enough in meaning. Since there were so many different Chibchan languages within the Chibchan orbit, it's hard to say exactly what title would be correct, though, anyway, because Columbus met a ruler in Veragua who was called a Quevi. Both Quevi and Quibion were popular terms for ruler in various Chibchan states. But in Darien, in what is now Panama, or excuse me, what is now uh, Western Colombia, near Panama, uh, Tiba 
was the correct title for Great Lord. That's where most of uh, today's episode is going to take place, is in Darien. Teba was the title that Balboa received. Anyway, regardless of what they were called, Chibchan rulers were born into the rule, just like in Spain. Under the Teba, or Cacique, was a secondary group of sub-chiefs who ruled underneath the Teba, or Cacique. They were called Sacos, and they ruled villages that were subordinate to the larger village where the chief lived. Below this ruling class were uh, the chief citizens of Chipchan society. This was comprised of a group of hereditary nobles. They were called cabras and had an important role in Chipchan warfare, just like the nobility of Spain. Of course, most people were commoners. In Chipchan society, the common people farmed, fished, hunted, and engaged in numerous crafts. The Chipchans also had a slave class as well. Slaves were obtained by securing captives through war or trade, hunting and fishing grounds being the chief things that Chibcham states went to war over. Generally speaking, the Chibchan preferred to live as spread out as possible, rather than in large towns or villages. Um, Peter Martyr described the common homes as made of wood, covered and enclosed with thatching and cane, and further explained that they preferred to separate their homes because of windstorms, which presumably, quote, a close-knit group of easily inflammable wood and thatched houses would be somewhat of a hazard. This is also an indication that warfare between caciques was not a major activity most of the time. Um, people who are at war all of the time have a tendency to live closer together for mutual security. Some I didn't end up uh, a close. I never unquoted that. I'm sorry. Uh, with that said, anyway, the amphibious topography of streams, natural levees, back swamps, and lagoons um, put kind of geographical restrictions on some parts of the isthmus, and 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 in these parts of the uh, isthmus, where Chibchan people lived close to water, they were far more likely to build um, larger towns made of rows of houses rather than spread out villages. So basically, <clears throat> the greater the threat of flooding, and I want to excuse me, guys, I want to tell you, the uh, a, a city pipe burst down the street for me right now, so I don't have any water to drink, so my voice is a little scratchy. I, I apologize. Um, I also apologize, uh, relatedly, the uh, heater just kicked on, and uh, normally I actually turn my AC off when I'm recording, um, but in case you can hear it, uh, it's like 7 degrees right now outside, so uh, uh, I'm leaving it on. <laughs> anyway, okay, so, basically, the greater the threat of flooding, the greater the population density of Chipchan towns. Now, in parts of Colombia and elsewhere, Chibchan people built their houses high up in the trees. Um, some trees in, uh, in, in Colombia are, were old and large enough, in fact, that Chibchan construction crews cut staircases into the trees, which would lead up into the homes above. Now, other tree houses were built over swamps, um, and their owners, in that case, often kept a canoe tied down at the bottom. I mean, I bet you had no idea that uh, uh, Native Americans had their own little, you know, little, little 
little driveway and garage there to park their canoe. Uh, anyway, the, the chiefs lived in great houses. Um, the Spanish called these bohios, borrowing that word from the, the Taino, uh, essentially a mansion. These were rectangular palaces. Um, they had one room in them was always reserved as a kind of a temple. It was filled with the dried cadavers of the chief's ancestors. They were hung from the ceiling by cotton cords and dressed according to their rank. So these were, of course, prime places for the Spaniards to loot because the ancestors were gold and pearls. The chief and his home was the center of Chibcham authority. In addition to being a home and a cemetery, the chief's bohio served as court of law and temple for his people. The Chibcham cacique was the highest judge and priest in the land, as well as political leader. Um, and because of that, uh, the Spaniards were keen to removing the cacique, um, especially if they could get away with uh, like a night raid and taking him or his family hostage then the Spaniards could basically force the subjects of that realm to do as the conquistadors commanded. Now, this understanding went both ways. For while the similarities to a Chibcham leader um, uh, meant, to, like the similarities between a, a Chibcham leader to a European king meant that the Spanish, when they got there, already had a ruthlessly effective strategy for controlling Chibcham states. But it also meant that Chibcham subjects completely understood, actually, conquest. Um, if a Spanish conquistador took over the old chief's bohio, um, and the Spanish conquistador would then claim the loot inside and become the lord of the realm, um, I mean, it was rightful for the lord of the realm to own the, the treasure that was the result of the accumulation of generations. For millennia before the arrival of the Spanish, the Chibcham lived by these rules of warfare. But what they couldn't understand, what was kind of incomprehensible to the Chibcham, what really separated them from the Spanish, was that when the Spanish rulers took possession of a Chibcham town, they took those cultural treasures and hastily smelted them into lumps of metal valued only for their weight. At any rate, Oviedo enlightens us as to what the Chibcham wore. He stated that, quote, women went very well clothed from the breast down in figured cotton mantas. They slept on well-ornamented cotton beds. The dresses reached to cover the, their feet and left their breasts and arms exposed. The men carried their genitals in seashells of many colors, very well fashioned, by cords that attached the shell about their loins. Such objects of trade, uh, such shells were objects of trade into the interior, for they were only found on the coast, unquote. Uh, I think that's kind of funny. In the east of Tierra Firm, Arawak communities existed side by side with Chibchan communities. Uh, but this was not the case in the west. Um, so there was no yucca grown and no cassava bread uh, east of the Gulf of Uraba. But uh, sweet potatoes were grown, and so some Arawak crops were grown into the Central American isthmus. But uh, bread was made from maize, not yucca. Maize was likewise popular farther east, 
at uh, Cartagena in Colombia and beyond. Uh, yucca was the staple in Venezuela, but in uh, Colombia and westward, the staple was maize, and the people didn't grow yucca. Unlike cassava and yucca, maize can be stored for a very long time, especially if you leave it on the cob. And so it's easily transported for long distances. And so when the Spanish arrived, they quickly started switching from yucca to maize after meeting the Chibchan. Chibchan farmers supplemented their crops with numerous fruit, more than even existed on the Caribbean. In particular, the Chibchan seemed to have been the first natives to introduce, introduce the Spanish to papaya, and uh, when the Spanish got to the west coast of Central America, to coconut. Of course, more important than eating fruit was turning it into booze. In Veragua, Columbus tasted maize wine, pineapple wine, and mame apple wine. Caciques kept large pottery vessels or wooden casks full of various alcoholic drinks for festivals. Oviedo stated, though, that fish was the most important food for Chibchan societies. Uh, these people, are, they had access to both the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, uh, there are numerous rivers and swamps uh, in Central America, and so fish and other marine resources were bountiful. Three Chibchan caciques, uh, Camogre, Pocarosa, and Dabiba, uh, were specifically named by the Spaniards as having control of fishing grounds on the Caribbean coast, even though all three of those uh, caciques lived themselves far into the interior. Um, nets were made from cotton, and they were commonly found in the homes of the Chibchan. And whatever fish and shellfish were not immediately eaten were often smoked and dried in barbacoas, save for later. And unlike today, though, much of Central America was open land back then. What with all the people, uh, there wasn't nearly as much forested land. Um, so with all, there's a lot of savannas. Uh, these were often full of deer and peccaries. Uh, they would range freely in these places, um, which were clustered near Chibchan settlements. And attracted by the growing crops and uncultivated fields, these provided excellent hunting uh, that would further supplement the Chibchan diet. Quoting Oviedo, quote, for the deer and pigs, they set up traps and snares of vines and other devices of nets into which these fall. At times, they organize drives and startle the game by hallowing and means of numerous people, cut off their escape, and get them to a place where they can be killed by darts and throwing spears, unquote. Just like in the Caribbean, the Chibchan collected gold from streams. It was not in large quantities, though, and the Spaniards did not believe that, in case you're wondering. In fact, the Chibchan barely knew more about collecting gold than the Taino did. Um, but they did spend more time than the Taino collecting gold. The Chibchan formed ceremonies before collecting gold in stream beds after the rainy season, or by burning certain savanna slopes to hopefully reveal glistening nuggets underneath. They did this because raw gold was important in native trade, um, because people like to make things, uh, you know, have gold jewelry on your on your on your dead grandfather or whatever. 
Somewhere in what is today the mountains of Colombia seems to have been a chiefdom or multiple chiefdoms that smelted gold. Much of it was mixed with copper. This produced an alloy that the natives called guanine. They are called the muisca. Um, but in the earliest days of Spanish colonization of the mainland, uh, the Spaniards only really knew uh, of of uh, native metalsmithing by the name of one cacique, Dabibe, or Dabiba. Uh, anyway, he ruled one of the chiefdoms of the Muisca, I, I believe, and the Muisca did have advanced knowledge of metalworking. But the Spaniards never really got to the bottom of the Indian metal trade. Um, it appears to have been long-standing, and it extended to very distant parts of the Americas. Uh, in part, the Spaniards never got to the bottom of it, though, because for the natives, um, the more valuable metal wasn't the gold, but the copper. The Spaniards never really bothered to ask where the copper came from. So that's a critical part of the mystery that continues to this elude us to this day, how, how that worked. Uh, but with that said, most of the um, conquests of this episode take place in the Central American Isthmus, not in the... Uh, not in Colombia. The conquest of the Muisca happened later in the century, um, and for us, in a later episode. At any rate, the main reason for the difference um, in, in the conquests being successful uh, in Central America, and they aren't successful in, in Colombia, is that um, there was a major divide in Chibchan, the macro culture, uh, at the Gulf of Uraba which is on the western Caribbean coast of Colombia. Most of the nation is on the eastern side of the Gulf, a smaller section of modern Colombia, and the rest of the Central American Isthmus is on the western side of the Gulf of, Gulf of Uraba. Chibchan warriors west of the Gulf fought in ways that are actually pretty reminiscent of Mesoamerican armies. They uh, fought in legions sometimes, with wooden shields and swords, darts, and various other weapons. Chipchan people east of the Gulf of Uraba fought primarily with bow and arrow, which were dipped in a deadly poison, and so the Spanish learned far less about them. The Spanish considered them largely to all be carrots, and in addition, they focused most of their efforts um, on the non-poison using natives on the western side of the Gulf of Uraba as a result. Now, the Gulf itself was named after one cacique, a Chibcham named Uraba, who uh, ruled on the eastern side of the Gulf and who most certainly was not a Carib, uh, though he was related um, in some way to other caciques east of Yoraba's lands. Um, one in particular was named Sainu, who the Spanish also considered Carib, but were not. Um, Sainu had a large role in the pre-Columbian trade routes as salt producers. Oviedo observed a salt industry where salt baskets were carried from the sea, as well as salted fish, crayfish, snails, and salted insects like cicadas and crickets. Because sometimes you don't want a commodity like salt. You want a luxury snack, like a salted cicada. According to one conquistador, Fernandez de Enciso, 
Sinu was unique in that the treasures of Sinu were crafted of an unusual alloy of gold and silver instead of the normal guanin, gold and copper. Um, anyway, uh, a, a lot about the metal trade and everything we don't we don't really understand. But uh, now on the eastern side of the Gulf of Uraba, there also seem to have been groups of Mesoamericans about. Uh, chocolate and feathers from tro tropical birds were very important trade items in Mexico, and these were secured for Aztec elites in Central America. Considering how little the Spanish understood the region, we don't really know uh, if they may have interacted. But um, I think it's likely, uh, for instance, that they did. Uh, for instance, um, Balboa reported, quote, very Carib and bad people who eat as many humans as they can get, unquote, while exploring the area of the Rio Coca. He was describing people who probably were not Carib, but instead were probably Mesoamerican, Maya or Aztec, perhaps. Who knows? Um, the Spanish sources, what I'm getting at, are confused, and thus so are we. Um, likewise mysterious is the fact that Spanish wrote about men who stalked the Pacific side of the isthmus in canoes, who wielded clubs in search of captives. Reportedly, they hunted each full moon. And many on the coast were fearful to go fishing at night at sea for that reason. And I mention them specifically because it's been postulated that perhaps these were Polynesians. And that's certainly possible. They were described as being black men. But I, I will have to say that it's probably more likely that these nighttime manhunters were probably Indians in search of slaves or sacrificial victims who wore black body paint to look more fearsome. But who knows? We just don't have any way of telling. Um, west of the Gulf of Uraba, Chibcham people differed than their Chibcham neighbors to the east in that there was a far greater Mesoamerican influence. Chibcham warriors in the West wore costumes that were similar to Mesoamerican costumes, especially regarding the use of cotton armor, quote, so strong that a crossbow will not pierce, unquote. Palisaded chiefdoms were more common west of Yoruba as well, which suggests warfare was more common, you know, before the Spaniards arrived, and making things more difficult for them when they invaded. Um, one thing that was particularly painful that the Spain, Spaniards became aware of um, was that the Western Chip Chan often used uh, cactuses to create tight enclosures and palisades. Towns in general were more common west of the Gulf of Uraba than they were east uh, in Colombia and Venezuela along the coast. Um, often uh, the Chip Chan lived in more dispersed villages. And defensive architecture, like moats and walls, are more common in the West as well. Now, Chibchan diet, likewise, uh, obviously varied depending on their location, like I said. Um, in the East, uh, people ate a lot of the similar of crops that the Arawak ate. They also did, though, eat Mesoamerican crops. So yucca and maize would be found side by side growing in their gardens. In the East of Yoruba, people... Chibchan people ate almost exclusively bread from maize and not yucca. Um, on the Pacific coast, Chibchan people ate coconuts, but they didn't eat that on the Caribbean side. In the farthest reaches of Chibchan lands, what is now Nicaragua, uh, 
the Chibcham people, uh, due to their proximity to Mesoamericans, meant that they ate domesticated dogs and turkeys as food. Um, elsewhere, Chibcham people did not, at any rate. Um, I mentioned that Columbus was the first to see Tierra Firm. When he lost the exclusive license to govern Spain's overseas discoveries in 1499, other conquistadors were given contracts to explore. Um, King Ferdinand offered men of ambition and means uh, the permission and, in sometimes, uh, help with the funding to adventure in the Americas in search of trade and plunder. I should say, though, that the Spanish crown was not the only person helping these conquistadors with the funding. Uh, various Spanish and Italian factors, uh, mainly based in the city of Seville, um, also provided uh, plenty of money. Now, these early attempts at conquest and exploration are known to us through history as the so-called minor voyages, and there were actually quite a few of them. And that's a big reason why I described, um, or these are a big reason why I described the conquest last episode as um, I, I compared the Spanish conquest to that of an octopus. Um, anyway, the most important of the factors or financial uh, supporters was undisputedly Juan Rodriguez de Fonseca. Fonseca was the Archdeacon of Seville and, more importantly, King Ferdinand's most trusted advisor. Fonseca was well-connected with many of the men in Spain who were investing in Spain's overseas adventurism, and so he was given the responsibility by King Ferdinand of overseeing all of Spanish overseas territories. One of his chief responsibilities was to see that the crown always got its cut. And so, until the death of King Ferdinand in 1516, and the subsequent start of the Cisneros reforms, Fonseca is the man behind the scenes uh, and pulling the strings and providing funds for the various tentacles of Spanish colonialism. Now, like I said, King Ferdinand is not the sole investor in this colonialism. Uh, the city of Seville is full of merchants and investors uh, who make their money in the shipping business. The owners of one in particular, one business in particular, that is, uh, are going to be very important in this part of history. Uh, they are the Guerra brothers, the, or Guara brothers, uh, Guerra brothers. I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce any of this, by the way. Louis and Cristobal. Their main business uh, Louis and Cristobal Guerra, was baking ship biscuit or hardtack for provisioning ships, bizcocho in Spanish. And their bizcocho factory was just outside of Seville's city limits. Now, besides making their money by selling supplies for ships, one of the Guerra brothers had gone along with Columbus on the third voyage, and he returned with pearls from Margarita Island. While he was gone, he also managed to secretly make a copy of Columbus's charts of the Pearl Coast. Afterwards, the Guerra brothers obtained patronage from Fonseca for one of the first so-called minor voyages that went to the mainland. And over the next 20 years or so, 
more and more conquistadors start visiting the coast of Central and South America. And, uh, and Spanish um, knowledge of, of what it is they're looking at uh, gets a lot, a lot more um, clear. The Guerra brothers obtained a license to be more involved in the Indies. But while they had plenty of money, plenty of motivation, and a map, uh, well, the Guerra brothers baked bizcocho. They didn't sail ships. So Louis Guerra stayed behind to run the family business. Cristobal Guerra took a shot at playing captain, but he needed someone to pilot his ship. So enter Perilonzo Nino who previously attended Columbus's first and second voyages, and was an experienced pilot of the Indies, but who himself didn't have any money to procure and fit out a ship and crew of his own. So in 1499, Cristobal Guerra captained a ship with 33 sailors, amongst them Perilonzo Nino as pilot, and his experience promptly guided the ship and crew back to the north shore of the Paria Peninsula, and then into the Gulf of Paria, basically at one end, leaving one end of the Caribbean Pearl Coast. Um, I, and I, I want to say, I call it the Caribbean Pearl Coast, I want to say, because later on the, when the Spanish get to the Pacific side of the Americas, they will, uh, there will be a quote-unquote Pearl Coast there as well. Um, so, so anyway... Now, the Spanish don't really know anything about the ecology of pearl oysters, mind you. Um, so the reason why this part of the New World had become a major pearl ground, for example, was, was they were completely ignorant of that. But what they did know was that uh, ever since Columbus's voyage, uh, his third voyage, that the people of Veregua had plenty of pearls. And more so, the natives of the region were willing to trade their pearls. Now, upon the arrival of Cristobal and uh, Perilonzo, the Spaniards met a force of Caribs in 18 canoes. Peter Martyr tells us, quote, the, the cannibals unconcernedly approached the ship, surrounding it, and shot flights of arrows and javelins. The Spaniards fired a salvo of cannon and drove off the canoes, capturing one in the process. In that canoe was a Carib and a prisoner a native of the nearby coast. Now, according to the Spaniards, the captive was bound to become the Caribs' dinner. Now, as I've said before, I have no idea if that's true. The Caribs talk all the time about the Carib... Excuse me, the Spaniards talk all the time about the Caribs eating people. But I can't seem to find an account where the Spaniards actually find someone who is being cooked or eaten by people who I can also confidently say was a Carib. Uh, like the Spanish claim they are. I mean, there are going to be people getting eaten later in our tale. Anyway, in this instance, I think these 18 canoes were manned by Caribs. The Gulf of Pariah was very close to Trinidad and Tobago, so it's easy to believe. But frankly, most of the time that the Spanish talk about Caribs eating people, it seems like they might be talking about Aztecs or Maya or other Mesoamericans who would definitely eat you. Um, that also happens in Brazil, which we're going to talk about next episode. But, but anyway, um, now with that said, despite my, uh, cynicism, it's entirely possible that the Caribs were eating people and did intend to eat this man. But whether or not they were going to kill him, 
um, uh, Edaman or not, and it's almost besides the point, because the Caribs were definitely going to imprison this captive, whether it was for slavery, or for killing, or for eating, or for whatever purpose. And whatever the truth of the matter, the Spaniards turned the tables on Carib and captive. They released the prisoner, gave him a cudgel, and let him take out his anger on the now-disarmed Carib warrior. Uh, quoting Peter Martyr again, quote, They made him a present of the cannibal, upon whom he immediately threw himself, gnashing his teeth and belaboring him with blows of a stick and with his fists and with kicks, unquote. Now, remarkably, this is actually the only recorded instance of violence on the voyage. Now, in part, the lack of violence might have been because Guerra and Nino didn't really stop anywhere to anchor. Ferdinand's instructions, in fact, specifically forbade them from doing so in the provinces discovered by Columbus. This was still Columbus's land. But uh, they were given permission to stick near the coastline and begin moving west, which they did. Eventually, they encountered another harbor and a village called Curiana by the inhabitants. And they decided that this was definitely not part of Columbus's Veragua, and so the men dropped anchor there. Now, the fishermen the Spanish met lived in a very small village of eight houses, which was ruled by a more populous village about three miles away. And promptly after the Spaniards arrived, the chief and 50 of his men headed their way. So that just as Nino and his men were landing off the boats, on to, and uh, the two cultures uh, began trading. Um, now, Perilonzo Nino distributed needles, bracelets, rings, glass pearls, and other goods. And in less than an hour, apparently, he obtained from the chip jam 15 ounces of pearls that they were wearing on their necks and arms. Nino discovered that the people were so numerous and eager to trade, in fact, that he stopped going on shore after that. He only had 30 men on his, in a single ship, and he was scared of being overrun. Instead, he invited uh, Chip Jams to come out on their canoes to visit the ship. And for the next six or seven months, that's pretty much what happened. The Nino-Guerra expedition made a tiny profit continuing to coast along westwards, occasionally stopping to trade for a short while, and ultimately, the two men returned to Spain with 96 pounds of pearls, some as large as hazelnuts, according to Peter Martyr. In fact, unlike nearly any other Spanish expedition so far in the Indies, this one resulted in a major profit. Las Casas, claimed that 150 pounds of pearls were taken. Perhaps he was exaggerating. Or perhaps the Nino Guerra expedition hid roughly 54 pounds of pearls from the tax collectors. I don't know. Without a doubt, it was the most profitable, uh, and with only one ship, least costly undertaken by the Spanish in the New World to that point. Now, Perilonzo Nino was imprisoned and accused of cheating Ferdinand, and his share of his property was confiscated. I don't know if it's true or not. Um, I find it very likely that a conquistador would try to cheat the king out of his taxes, to be honest, and then maybe get caught. But with that said, 
Peralonzo Nino was what is known as a Morisco. His family converted from Islam to Christianity, and that means it is also entirely possible that his prosecution was just an inquisition, and basically essentially designed to defraud him of his wealth rather than to punish a theft. Either way, Peralonzo Nino, and uh, unfortunately for him and for lovers of the truth, we would know the truth of this story, his case never saw the light of day in a Spanish court. He died shortly before his trial. Now, with that said, either way, Perlonzo Nino and Cristobal Guerra returned with a gigantic haul of pearls. And the Spanish crown was thinking to themselves, you know, we really ought to think, send, think about sending another voyage to the Pearl Coast. So Cristobal Guerra was sent back to the Pearl Coast in early 1501. Now, unfortunately for Cristobal, he kind of took the same path he took the time before. And the upwards of 150 pounds of pearls he'd brought back during the first expedition meant that the market had been just about picked clean. His second attempt secured very little in pearls. Now, in the near future, the Spanish would start um, enslaving, trans transporting and en enslaving and then transporting Lucayans to the Pearl Coast, uh, Lucayans lived in the Bahamas, to force them into a life of oyster-diving slavery. But for now, the Spanish only got their pearls by trade. Now, with that said, when Cristobal Guerra couldn't find any pearls, he started raiding the island of Bonaire for slaves. He was going to make a profit one way or another. Now, Queen Isabella, the more compassionate side of the Spanish crown, considered the natives of the Pearl Coast her subjects. She ordered Guerra to return the slaves back to the Americas at his own expense when he returned to Spain to try to sell them. So, um, but as Morrison relates, quote, the Indians always lost, unquote. Now, everything Isabella learned about the Americas she learned from her conquistadors. And while originally... Um, when she, when news of Columbus coming back from Veragua, and, and Veragua, I mean, and Col Columbus just described Veragua as a paradise, uh, with people eager to become Christians. So Isabella, um, considered them her natives. But, um, after 1501 especially, um, numerous conquistadors and, and, and men who were making a profit off of this, uh, off of this, pointed out to her time and time again that the entirety of the coastline of Tierra Firm uh, was full of nothing but warlike Caribs. Two years later, in 1503, the queen will reverse course. She issued a order permitting the enslavement of the natives in the Gulf of Darien, since they were, quote, incorrigible pagans and a menace to honest Christians, unquote. Now, the Gueras received a third asiento, or contract, and made a third voyage in the summer of 1504. They made their way to the Gulf of Darien once again, both brothers at the helm of a caravel this time. The third voyage succeeded like the first, and once again they obtained many pearls, this time by very different means. Now, by this point, the Spanish were aware of a lot of new islands, new, well, islands they were not familiar with before, off the coast of Tierra Firm, uh, like Bonaire. 
These weren't part of the chain of islands that forms the, the greater and lesser Antilles, but off the coast of Venezuela, Colombia, and parts of Central America, there's a lot of islands. Uh, and the pearls and other treasures that the Gueras obtained on their third expedition was from raiding the island of Bonaire again, which is off the coast of Venezuela. Um, in ad addition, as ad additionally, the demand on Hispaniola for Indian labor in the gold mines in, of the Caribbean was such that as the 16th century went on, uh, raiding the crypts of dead caciques for gold and pearls isn't the only way that conquistadors could obtain wealth through conquest. Uh, Spanish sources indicate that the Gueras took many slaves on their third on their third raid. They experienced success at first by capturing a cacique and ransoming him back to his people for a basket worth of gold worth around thirty thousand pesos, just a fortune. Uh, Guerra wanted more, and so he began raiding the interior. On one, or excuse me, the Gueras. On one of these raids, Cristobal Guerra was killed, though. The other Guerra brother. Louis Guerra, who was even less experienced than his brother at sailing, ended up running his caravel ashore. And as a result, Louis Guerra and the survivors of his expedition ended up having to be rescued off the coast. They didn't end up making their way back to Spain until 1506. Now, at any rate, we don't know a whole lot else much about the specifics of this third Guerra's expedition or the wars that they fought against the Arawak people who lived on Bonaire. But we do know that eventually the population of Bonaire was put into ruin. The fate of many of these people was to be sold as slaves on Hispaniola or to other Spanish gold mines. Now, in subsequent years, the Guerras continued to engage in slave raiding. But in order to find enough naive in order to find people naive enough to uh, toward towards in in the face of Spanish aggression, they started focusing their slave taking efforts far west of where uh, they had been in uh, in uh, Colombia and uh, and and mostly Venezuela. They had moved to the coast of uh, farther westward on Colombia near modern Cartagena. Um, now a big reason that the Guerra brothers started turning to slave trading, uh, of course, was that by that time, um, there were very few pearls to be had on the, on the quote, Pearl Coast, uh, the Gulf of Paria, where Trinidad and Tobago nearly touched Venezuela. Um, this third voyage came back with a lot of pearls by, the con by means of the conquest of Bonaire, um, and, and like I said, eventually the, the Spanish will kind of cure or rectify their pearl shortage situation uh, by essentially forcing the Baham the people of the Bahamas to die for pearls, uh, uh, where they end up, I'm mean, really just uh, diving them to death in the same way that they end up killing people in the mines. Uh, anyway, for the Gueras, uh, in the short term, though, this, this uh, when they are doing their voyages, the, uh, the, the pearl-collecting... Uh, camps haven't really opened up yet, and so they were just pillaging. Um, and with that said, uh, before the Guerra brothers made their three voyages, uh, the first of which was in 1499, technically there was another captain who actually received his patronage in, uh, earlier in 1499, 
than the Guerra brothers did. Uh, so he actually received permission to go on a minor voyage first. His name is Alonso de Ojeda. This is the same Ojeda we spoke of before, because he was one of Columbus's captains during the second voyage, and he was one of the Almirante's chief agents in suppressing Taino revolts, and he also had a hobby of collecting human ears during Columbus's second voyage, and, well, ended up, you know, uh, trying to form, foment a revolt in Hispaniola. Um, well, anyway, we're going to talk about uh, his actions on Tierra Firm today, because uh, he left quite a mark on history there as well. At any rate, Ojeda departed Seville in May of 1499 with about 300 soldiers under his command before uh, Nino and uh, the Gueras. Samuel Elliot Morrison describes Ojeda as, quote, courageous, ruthless, greedy, and exceptionally cruel, and in addition, called him a merry devil. And let me add that Ojeda has got to be one of the most untrustworthy son-of-a-bitches to have ever sailed the Seven Seas. Now, there were other notables on Ojeda's fleet. One was Amerigo Dispucci, uh, Vespucci, excuse me, Amerigo Dispucci, Amerigo Vespucci, who would use the information he learned on this voyage to pretend he took an earlier voyage. Uh, we're going to talk about him a lot more next episode. And Juan de la Cosa, the pilot for Columbus on his first two voyages. Now, Ojeda, like I said, technically left first. But unlike Nino and Guerra, who went straight to the New World to begin trading, Ojeda took his sweet, sweet time. He left in command of three ships and 300 men, and one of which that Ojeda found to be unseaworthy. So he promptly returned it and then hijacked someone else's ship to replace it. Along the route, Ojeda performed more acts of piracy. He went down on a small boat on several occasions with the most cutthroat members of his crew. And when other ships neared, they would beg for food and water. Once the unsuspecting ship let Ojeda and his men on board, they would throw off their disguises and begin fighting, showing their weapons and taking any valuables that they could get. Ojeda supplemented the income from his piracies as well by illegally selling arms and gunpowder he stole from those ships to Moorish soldiers in Morocco. After going to Morocco to do this, Ojeda finally directed his fleet into the Atlantic, towards the Canary Islands. Upon his arrival, he promptly tried to steal another caravel, but when that failed, he instead settled for raiding the storehouses of the island of Gomera. Morrison informs us that these acts of piracy were actually, in fact, a better way, probably, of outfitting his expedition than, on than by relying on Spanish factors back on land, to be honest. All told, Ojeda's fleet made two trips to Africa, four stops in the Canaries, and committed essentially a lifetime's worth of piracies before he finally started going to the Americas. Ojeda and his men were aiming for the Gulf of Pariah, where South America and the Caribbean nearly meet. Um, but he landed several hundred miles east of this. And so he actually managed to map more of South America uh, than the Spanish had learned about than before. Um, than without it. Uh, so uh, before he reached his goal, uh, uh, he, he had mapped out several hundred miles of South America. Now, 
Unlike Guerra and Nino, Ojeda had no qualms about stopping in Veragua, which was the place that had been previously claimed by Columbus. And in fact, Ojeda renamed Veragua as Venezuela, Little Venice, due to the fact that the Indians living at the mouth of the Orinoco River, which fed into the Gulf of Paria, were built on piles over the water, literally a Little Venice. The natives of the village went out there to meet the Spanish ships, greeting and inspecting the strange newcomers and their uh, strange ships, uh, much as they had with Columbus and then Guerra and Nino. Ojeda immediately attacked the scattered and defenseless natives, on account of there being no good dirty Caribs, at least according to Ojeda. The initial surprise musket attack left 20 of the Indians dead, Ojeda followed up this by going inland with his men, moving 12 miles to the interior to attack a nearby village, there capturing numerous slaves and looting the village of its gold. The captured Chibchan escaped, though, on their way back to the coast, except for one girl who Ojeda had obtained specifically to be his mistress and to teach her to interpret for him. Besides this, Ojeda accomplished very little in the New World, except for one thing. He sent pilots out uh, east and west uh, while he was busy attacking so that they could continue mapping more of the surrounding coastlines. And by the time he returned, um, it is perhaps he had gotten as far as northern, or someone under his command had gotten as far as northern Brazil. Um, at any rate, Ojeda left there for Hispaniola, where he attempted to depose Columbus, but was thwarted by the reformed rebel Francisco Roldan, something we discussed in the episode 1492, and after his failed rebellion on Hispaniola, he sailed back to Spain early in the in early summer of the year 1500. Now, despite these countless piracies, Ojeda was well-liked in Spain, especially by Queen Isabella, who, dare I say, had a crush on him. Thus, the villain escaped any punishment whatsoever for his actions, and instead received permission for a second voyage, along with the title of governor of the province of Coquivacoa, which is what the natives called uh, their region, not Venezuela or Veragua. Now, in the grand scheme of things, uh, this didn't end up accomplishing a whole lot, but... Um, Essentially, the main thing Ojeda did, besides map out some more territory, was that he shows that the Spanish crown is trying to separate parts of Tierra Firm from Columbus, immediately realizing they think they've made a big mistake. And so, uh, Veragua is originally everything, now it's something very small. Uh, you know, the, the town nearby Veragua, Coquivacoa, um, is now its own province with a, with the title of Ojeda. Anyway. Um, now, with that said, Nino and Guerra also managed to, maybe it doesn't seem like they accomplished a whole lot, except for getting some pearls, but um, a whole of over 100 pounds of pearls um, really, really meant that uh, the reputation of Tierra Firm as a place where wealth could be obtained easily started to grow. Um, so anyway, between the 100 pounds of pearls and the roughly 1,000 miles of Tierra Firm uh, that were mapped now back in Spain when Guerra, Nino, and Ojeda all returned, um, they proved not only that 
Columbus was correct um, that there was a, a land there. But further, they were starting to show that Tierra Firm was at least as large uh, as it was continuous from northern Brazil to Panama. Uh, it was quite large. You know, the Guerra family held on to their contract to the, on the Pearl Coast for a number of years after this. Other licensees were warned to keep away, and although it took some time for the surviving brother to return to Spain after the third voyage, the wealth he brought from raiding Bonaire meant that the legend of the wealth of Tierra Firm continued to grow. Anyway, let's turn back to Alonso de Ojeda, because he received his second uh, asiento, a contract in 1502, uh, for his return trip to the Americas, and though he had an, some initial trouble getting his funding, he set out again once more eventually with a fleet of four ships. Um, a minor side mission on this fleet um, was to search for Englishmen. Now, I know I haven't really brought up Englishmen much yet, uh, but I promise you the English are coming. Uh, for now, it's enough to know that in 1498, John Cabot went on a voyage for the English crown and that the Spanish knew of this voyage. And they hadn't heard about anything that had happened after John Cabot left uh, England. Excuse me. And they were afraid he'd tried to start up a colony in the Caribbean. Now, Ojeda didn't find any English, mind you. And frankly, I'm pretty sure there weren't any in the Caribbean yet. But like I said, they will be coming, and so too will be the French and the Dutch, and to plunder and claim land in the Caribbean and, on the, and, 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 in, uh, and in the Americas, which was first discovered and claimed by Columbus and the Spanish, but had not been colonized by the colonized conquistadors. Um, you know. Now, the English were way, way north of Ojeda, and so he was not finding them, and that meant he was free to pursue his other mission. Ojeda was to build a fort on Tierra Firm and to start a colony, and then to look for more pearls, gold, and emeralds, since emerald mines were rumored to exist in Colombia. Now, just like his first expedition, Ojeda took his sweet time getting back to the Americas. First, he resumed his piracy on the high seas. Now, he realized he probably wasn't going to be getting much of a warm welcome in the Canary Islands after his earlier crimes, so instead of going to the Spanish Canary Islands, he went to the Portuguese Cape Verdes, to the city of Santiago, to look for supplies there instead. Ojeda and his men promptly got into an armed brawl with the Portuguese authorities at uh, Santiago, and as a result, his chief caulker was arrested and detained. Now, caulking the planks and frame of a ship is extremely important on a wooden ship, by the way, in case you're wondering. So Ojeda's response to the Portuguese governor having arrested one of his men was to kidnap two men from Cape Verde, one white and one black, presumably both skilled caulkers, and then, as he left, he fired a salvo of cannonballs at the governor's mansion uh, while sailing out of the harbor. He never did manage to pick up the supplies, and so by the time he arrived, though, in the Gulf of Pariah in March, his crew was nearly starved to death. Now, for whatever reason, perhaps because everyone was very, very hungry and there were no Snickers bars, Ojeda did not build much of a fort then on Tierra Firm. He built a token base on a barren part of the coastline in what is now the 
Guarajira Peninsula, if I'm saying that right, which is now on the border of what is now the Colombia-Venezuela border. Uh, and that served little purpose. Um, uh, it was no purpose, in fact. It was little more than a gesture saying, here, I have completed my instructions, uh, King Ferdinand. Now, perhaps it was a result also that by the point, by this point, the Indians of Venezuela and Colombia were pretty much royally pissed off. And so it was much easier for Ojeda to build a base where nobody lived rather than build a base where he could say, trade with the native people who lived nearby. Regardless, Ojeda was instructed to sail west, away from uh, Columbus and the Guerras, uh, Columbus's Veragua and the Guerras constructed contracted coastline. So, of course, when the shabby fort was finished, he sailed east, right into the Guerras lands, and began trading and raiding there. Ojeda's trading post was a miserable failure. Neither gold nor pearls was to be had from the uh, poor fishermen who lived nearby. Very few people lived nearby, just some, some fishermen. And they weren't really in any mood to have peaceful relations with the Spanish anyway, since they kept trying to kidnap people. This lack of economic opportunity for the conquistadors led Ojeda's men to captains to mutiny. The instant Ojeda returned from raiding in the Guerra's lands, they put him in irons and sailed off and sailed with him to Santo Domingo, where Espanola's authorities threw Ojeda in jail at the request of his business partners, and they promptly confiscated his property. But like I said, Ojeda was popular back at home, and I'm pretty sure Isabella had a crush on him. So he was released and returned to Spain later that year. The coastline of Venezuela and Colombia was raided pretty heavily from the next two years, from 1500 to 1502, by both Ojeda and the Guerras. But after this, virtually no mention was made of the colonies here for several years. Raiding in coastal South America incensed the, the huge, to be honest, these gigantic populations uh, of Chipchans in the mainland South America. Um, and, and so it just became simply too, far too dangerous for conquistadors to raid here. But other minor voyages did continue to take place. Records are few, but it's clear that the Spanish continued to visit the coast of Tierra Firm. They just, uh, after these initial attempts at colonization resulted in failure, they just stuck to the coast, it appears. Now, on paper, the Spanish plan had sounded fantastic. Guerra, the Guerras would operate the Pearl Coast, Ojeda would hold land west of the Pearl Coast to hold off the English and to continue to explore. Um, the reality of this situation, though, was that after a couple of trips that brought back easy profits by uh, trading for pearls, um, the propensity that the conquistadors had for being so greedy and murderous that they would enslave natives and kill natives for their gold, raping them just because uh, uh, they could. Um, that, I mean, just really, just in a couple of years, the situation had gone from one of peaceful trading to a situation where the only money to be made by Europeans on Tierra Firm was by risking one's life attempting to capture slaves while dodging poisonous arrows of very vengeful-minded Chipcham. Now, Despite this reality on the ground, the stories of the wealth of the Indies in gold and pearls continued to grow back in Europe. 
And 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 of the indies, I mean, Terra Firm was getting the biggest reputation because there wasn't just gold; there was lots of gold and pearls. And the fact that Alonso de Ojeda failed to explore west as his asiento instructed meant that there were others who were willing to seek that opportunity. One was Juan de la Cosa, previously Ojeda's pilot on his first voyage. He partnered with another captain named Rodrigo de Bastides, who was a retired mariner who had been a small-time merchant, and who by 1500 decided he wanted to share in the profits of the New World expeditions. Juan de la Cosa, by this point, uh, was without a doubt the most experienced pilot in Spain. Uh, he had been along on Columbus's first two voyages before teaming up with Ojeda, and with Bastides, this was his seventh Atlantic crossing. They sailed from Seville on July 5th, 1500, in two caravels. When they arrived it, in uh, Tierra Firm, they sailed west along basically the entire coastline of modern Colombia, and from there into Central America before finally turning back to Hispaniola. Now, along the way, Bastidas and Ojeda obtained a fairly large haul of gold and pearls. Um, finding, they found the Gulf of Uraba. Uh, that's where they found the gold and pearls, by trading there. Which, well, trading and raiding, I should say. Basically, the Gulf of Uraba, like I said, is lies between, kind of separates the Central American Isthmus and South America. Um, on one side is a little bit of... Uh, you know, there's, so there's a part of Colombia that is in Central America and part that, that is in South America. Anyway, trading with the people there uh, is what they did. Uh, and then they eventually returned to Hispaniola. And this was a very important discovery back in Spain. Uh, the Gulf of Uraba, that is. Because the natives of the Gulf of Uraba were fond of wearing gold jewelry. Now, but of more important, uh, a, a more immediate importance to La Cosa and Bastidas, however, was by the time they turned back towards Hispaniola, their ships were riddled with worms, and they were shipwrecked on Hispaniola, on the opposite end of the island from Santo Domingo, the capital. And so they suffered the indignity of walking to the capital of the Spanish West Indies, though presumably they still had Indian porters carrying the treasure and giving uh, them, the men directions to the, to the via. They arrived hungry, tired, and their clothes in tattered. And for their troubles, Francisco Bobadilla, Hispaniola's second governor, if you'll recall, promptly imprisoned them and confiscated their gold and pearls. But luckily for uh, La Cosa and Bastidas, the new new governor arrived shortly after that, Nicolas de Ovando, if you'll recall last episode. Ovando released Bastidas and La Cosa and sent them back to Spain on a ship called the Aguja a tiny little ship that was part of the West Indies treasure fleet which sank in the famous hurricane of July 1502, the very same Aguja which carried Columbus's treasure and survived the storm, the only ship to do so, and from which Columbus became known as a sorcerer. This same stroke of luck meant that Bastidas and La Cosa made it back to Saint Spain safely, and the legend of the wealth of Tierra Firm continued to grow. Now, before we continue along with this tale, I, and this is skipping ahead just a little bit, but just so you know, Bastides is done essentially in in our episode, but he's not done adventuring. Despite that uh, narrow escape, he actually returns to the Americas later in 1524. Um, 
he received after receiving a contract from Charles V to start a colony on the Spanish Main. He will spend two years on Hispaniola raising livestock and recruiting colonists before finally setting sail in May of 1526 with four caravels and 500 colonists, including women and children. Um, Bastidas, you know, had experience with what happened to men like Ojeda, who attempted to go to war with the Indians of Tierra Firm, and he had no intention of his life being ended, fall full of poisonous arrows, bloated and disfigured, and he was careful not to go to war with the locals after founding his colony called Santa Marta. But he was less wise with his treatment of the colonists, and if there's one thing a Spanish Hidalgo would not stand, it was being put to work at manual labor. Bastidas put the knights under him to work at manual labor. These conquistadors became angrier and angrier. The straw that broke the camel's back was an epidemic of dysentery, and afterwards a certain Juan de la Fuerte de Villafuerte leads a rebellion against Bastidas, who flees the colony, himself sick with dysentery, he will die on his caravel at sea during his escape to Santo Domingo. Anyway, returning back to 1503, and to Seville, if we can. The, there, the Casa de Contracción, which, as you'll call, is the agency which uh, Ferdinand sets up to help govern uh, his overseas expansion, uh, they start setting up a fleet to follow up on Bastidas and La Cosa's voyage. Now, Bastidas puts in a bed for this, so does the Gueras, uh, but the Asianto went to Juan de La Cosa, like I said, the most experienced pilot in Spain. Um, the wealth, so far, from the Pearl Coast had created a lot of competition for the contract um, because for who would get a colony in the Gulf of Uraba. Tierra Firm was seen as a land of limitless wealth by this point, and it was this viewpoint, essentially the original viewpoint of Columbus, of this of this paradise, that helped I mean, foster like a pressure within Spanish society, where you've got these ambitious men of means arguing that they deserve the right to get that wealth for Spain, for Christendom, and of course for themselves. Now, the part about it being for Spain and Christendom is what persuaded people like Queen Isabella to sign a law, uh, which is what she did on October 30th, 1503, that it stated all inhabitants of Tierra Firm were Caribs. And like I said, this might seem astonishing to us. I mean, especially considering that Isabella was often concerned that the Indians were being mistreated. But like I said, there, there, I'm sure there was no end of Hidalgos who approached the queen and assured her that none but vicious cannibals lived on Tierra Firm and these devil-worshipping man-eaters were preventing honest Christians from spreading the word of God in the Americas. And, and regardless exactly of exactly how or why she was convinced, uh, at the start of the 16th century, carib is a term in Spain that was interchangeable with cannibal. Cannibal was interchangeable interchangeable with hostile enemy, and with a few strokes of the pen, Isabella transformed two continents full of people, like a hundred million individuals, into Caribs, cannibals, enemies of the state. And this was the law that uh, of the land, essentially, that, Asian, that uh, Juan de la Cosa went to, Asiento in hand, when he went to the Gulf of Uraba in 1504, with the official rank of high constable. Oviedo 
gave the chief account of Kosa as lord of Yoraba, and he does not have good things to say. Quote, Kosa, with better reason, might be called alterer and destroyer of the land, since his purpose was not so much to serve God and king as to rob, unquote. Upon his arrival, La Cosa began loading valuable Brazil wood into his ships. And Brazil wood is a, uh, you can make a, a kind of a reddish-purplish dye out of it. It was very, very valuable to in Europe. And besides loading Brazil wood, uh, La Cosa immediately started attacking the natives of one of the nearby islands called uh, Codega, where an Arawak society existed. There, La Cosa captured more than 600 Arawaks. He sailed from Yoraba after that to look for the Guerra brothers' colony. He found the Guerra's ships, though, as I mentioned, Cristobal Guerra himself had been killed in a fight with the Indians. Louis and the other survivors, though, were very excited to go home. La Cosa transferred his cargo of Brazil wood and slaves onto Guerra's ships and had this sent to Spain while he continued his assaults and robberies against the Caribs of the region. The natives targeted by La Cosa and the Gueras, for that matter, were actually mainly Arawakan societies on the islands like Bonaire, Curacao, and Aruba. The fate of these people was the same as many of the Taino. Anyway, like I said, the Gulf of Uraba got its name from a, a cacique who lived in a town situated on the Gulf. When La Cosa returned to Uraba after rescuing Louis Guerra, he managed to capture the town of Uraba and its gold, and he learned from the people there about the location of Darien, another Indian town on the other side of the Gulf of Uraba. Kosa captured Darien as well, and the cacique there likewise had a lot of gold. Now, unfortunately for Kosa, though, his ships sank on the way back across the Gulf from Darien back to Uraba, and he was stranded. Um, over It took 18 months uh, for him and his men to build barks that they used to escape. During that time, they continued to raid the countryside, of course, for food and gold. Now, between warfare with the Indians, uh, sickness from being in a new land and, and everything else, a lot of uh, La Cosa's expeditions started to die. By 1506, there were fewer than 50 men of the original 300 who escaped Uraba. They made their way back to Hispaniola. Now, in the meantime, Alonso de, de Ojeda received a third co contract to set up another colony in 1504, so long as he was more behaved from now on. But I, I, all we really know about this voyage is that uh, Ojeda probably engaged on it. Well, I should say I know. that The sources actually kind of disagree on whether or not he took it. Um, with the goal of building a fort, is what the goal uh, of the object was, was to build a fort in Yoraba. He did not do so. Carl uh, Ortland Sauer believes it's possible that the Archbishop Fonseca uh, never gave Ojeda enough funding to properly build um, uh, and supply any such fort. And really, he was just sending Ojeda out there with an asiento, saying he was governor because this was merely a, a, a way to stifle the claims of the Columbus family, who at this point in time were vigorously arguing that the entirety of the Americas was theirs, as well as um, 
a way to get rid of the ambitions of Nicolas de Ovando, because the governor of Hispaniola was starting to get interested in financing his own conquests uh, of the mainland. And regardless, um, there was some a lot of issues with 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 how the conquest was going to be was going to proceed from here. Uh, things weren't working out very well, um, and it wasn't clear who really in Spain, from Spain's perspective, who had the rule to who had the right to rule. Um, now, some of these issues though were going to be settled pretty soon. Um, that's because Queen Isabella will die in 1505. And afterwards, Ferdinand calls for a pair of conferences in the towns of Toro and Burgos, and Spain's colonial plan in the Indies is one of the main topics at discussion. The first conference was at Toro. Two experts were brought to the court, Yanez Pinzon and Amerigo Vespucci, to help instruct the king and his advisors on the limits of the Americas. Now, by this point, Vespucci received Spanish citizenship, uh, and Vespucci and Pinzon had also sailed through enough of South America to know uh, that it continued on to the south beyond the tropical climate of the equator. Now, the Spanish also discussed how far the English explorations had gone. Their island rival was, by this point, taking good long looks at the North American coastline. Pinzon and Vespucci likewise reported uh, that beyond the mountains of Tierra Firm, another ocean was rumored to exist, the fabled South Sea. Plans were made for Vespucci and Pinzon to go out on another fleet to go beyond the Americas and to discover the Spice Lands. But not everything was settled after just one conference. The death of Isabella created a lot of uncertainty in Spain. It was her marriage, after all, to Ferdinand that had created Spain out of Castile and Aragon in the first place. So when she died, uh, Ferdinand actually, uh, basically in the middle of the conference almost, was forced to flee from Aragon back to from Castile back to Aragon. The proposed voyage for Vespucci and Pinzon, which would have probably taken them into the Gulf of Mexico, never occurred. And um, at any rate, things calmed down a bit. Uh, after that, by 1508, Ferdinand called another conference, this time in Burgos, which is why we know of these two meetings as the Junta of Toro and Burgos in the first place. Unfortunately for Amerigo Vespucci, he was quite ill in 1508. He won't die until 1512, but he was replaced at the conference by Diaz de Solis. It is Diaz de Solis and Yanez Pinzon, then, who were granted permission at the Conference of Burgos to look for a way into the South Sea, and it was them who were probably the first Spaniards to see the Gulf of Mexico. We don't know a whole lot about the expedition of Solis of Pinzon, though. They sailed northwest from Tierra Firm to look for a passage between the Americas that led them to the South Sea, and they were the first Spaniards thus to spot the Yucatan Peninsula. And from there, the Gulf of Mexico. But remarkably, Pinzon and Solas didn't come back with news of having met the Maya. Now, on the one hand, it seems like this would be hard to miss. What with giant fortresses and temples and palaces made of stone and in the Yucatan. But on the other hand, Solas and Pinzon were looking for a strait to go to the Spice Lands. 
they were, didn't have an expedition that was equipped to land on the Yucatan and look for Indians to fight and rob. And as such, this first voyage to Spain into the Gulf of Mexico to look for a Western passage not only failed to find a passage, which of course doesn't exist, but also failed to make contact with the great civilizations of Mexico. When Solis and Pinzon returned with the news that no passage existed, interest in Mexico drained away. Well, obviously just for a few years at any rate. Now, Ferdinand's sending of uh, Pinzon and Solis to look for a Western passage was not the only decision made at Burgos. More importantly, for this episode especially, were the concessions made that were hoped to induce Spanish colonization onto Tierra Firm. The crown's share of revenue from mines in Tierra Firm was cut from the normal fifth to a tenth until 1512. This provided would-be conquistadors a sizable ta tax break. The crown promised to help provide arms and some military support, but also made clear that the majority of the coast would be borne by the conquistadors themselves. Ferdinand also split Tierra Firm in half. The western side was named Veragua, and was going to be under the control of Diego de Nisueza. The eastern side was called Uraba, and would be controlled by Alonso de Ojeda, which was his fourth asiento for a voyage into the New World, this time with Juan de la Cosa as his second-in-command. The Gulf of Uraba was the border between the two. Each administration was charged with building two forts, one within a year and a half, the second in the remaining two and a half years that uh, made up the four-year contract. Now, in order to build these, 800 men were going to be enrolled in Spain and given free passage. Allied and trained natives from Hispaniola were to be brought from to the mainland. And a total of 400 Indians excuse me, could be taken from surrounding islands of the mainland. An idea that they basically got from Ovando. Um, but at Burgos, I should, mind, should tell you that care was taken to avoid the word slave. Now, Diego de Nisueza and Alonso de Ojeda were actually very similar in both character and background. Morrison tells us they were rivals in tournament uh, and often competed, Nisueza usually won, in, quote, gentlemanly feats of horsemanship, unquote. Nisueza was also, I should say, a talented singer and guitar player. He and Ojeda hated each other. So while part of the reason that Ferdinand had for turning Tierra Firm into two territories was, again, um, to separate uh, Veragua away, you know, so he's created Veragua and Uraba. And, um, but another reason is simply just kind of keep these two guys away from each other. Um, now, you might think then that everything would just work out well. Nisueza and Ojeda, sworn enemies of each other, with their but with their territory wisely divided. Um, well, that was definitely a plan, and it looked, again, like a great plan on paper. But for Spain's first colonies on Tierra Firm just ended in absolute failure. Now, in order to meet the labor demands of the contract, Ojeda and Nisueza took another partner. His name was Martin de, Enciso, in, in Martin de Enciso. He was a lawyer who had made a fortune 
pleading for litigants in the courts of Hispaniola, and Inciso stayed in Hispaniola, basically, and his job was to obtain recruits and supplies for the two new colonies. Now, at the start, Ojeda and Cosa carried about 300 men. Nisueza had 785 men, which, to be honest, had a lot more to do with the fact that Spanish conquistadors were a lot more eager to go to Veragua than to Uraba. No doubt enchanted by the description by Columbus that Veragua was a paradise. I should also point out that Nisueza was also taking way too many men that he could adequately maintain or manage or feed. Another reason for the Spanish preferring Veragua was that it contained the best harbor in all of Tierra Firme, Cartagena, Colombia. So, of course, when Alonso de Ojeda went on his voyage, allegedly to Uraba, it only makes sense that he went straight to Cartagena, Colombia, which um, I'm not surprised at all. The only thing that surprises me, frankly, is that on Ojeda's fourth voyage, he didn't first engage in any acts of piracy off the coast of Africa before coming to the Americas. Probably, to be honest, in my opinion, he was too concerned with arriving at Cartagena before Nisueza. At any rate, Veragua, described by Columbus, Columbus as a paradise, was considered the greater prize than Uraba was. And so that is exactly why the merry devil Ojeda made his way to Veragua. Ojeda's motives, once he landed at Cartagena, were directly connected to the Queen's license in 1503, which made it legal to subjugate, capture, and sell the natives of Tierra Firm as Carib slaves. Now, Colombia was filled with various peoples, many of them Chipchan, such as the people who lived off the coast of Cartagena. They were called the Caramari. In Spanish law, they were Caribs, of course, though, not Caramari or Chipchan. The Caramari wielded two separate kinds of shields. They used wooden swords with serrated obsidian blades made infamous by the Aztecs. And in addition, they used a very potent poison on the tips of their arrows. Upon landing, Ojeda and La Cosa immediately engaged in a razia. Ojeda read the Requimiento, the document written in Spanish, or maybe actually even Latin, but anyway, it was read out loud, and this, these magical words theoretically transformed the ownership of the land to the Spanish via, you know, a magical incantation. Afterwards, Ojeda felt he had legal jurisdiction to attack the Caramari. He killed a lot of people. He captured a few more and found a little gold in a village near the coastline. Then he led his troops inland, where he captured and chased more Karamari as he went about before eventually finding another village, though this one was abandoned. Surprise, surprised. Uh, Ojeda and his men decided to rest after this easy success, and they were promptly taken by surprise counterattack. In, wherein the resting and surprised Spaniards uh, were attacked with the aforementioned poisoned arrows. By the end of this battle, 70 Spaniards were dead, bloated and disfigured by poison. Amongst them was Juan de la Cosa. Ojeda himself was wounded, but apparently his life was saved by two actions. The first being that immediately after he was shot, one of his, he ordered one of his soldiers to cauterize his wound with a red-hot sword blade. The second was by, quote, running, so that he seemed to be flying, unquote, as he retreated with his men back to the ships. As for the bloated corpse of Juan de la Cosa, 
This had been his eighth or ninth voyage, I think, to the New World. He was only there because it was believed in Spain that he was necessary to temper um, the unpredictable recklessness of Ojeda. La Cosa was the most senior and knowledgeable pilot of the American waters in the service of Spain. And at the time of his death, there was no one who could navigate the shores of the, of the Americas as well as he could. No cartographer in Europe was as knowledgeable about the New World as he was. His death was a keenly felt back in Spain. It was a loss to the colonial effort, but life does go on. Afterwards, Ojeda and the survivors, though saddened and depressed by this calamity, according to Peter Martyr, sailed west followed and followed the coast to the Gulf of Uraba, where they were supposed to be in the first place. Ojeda immediately there assaulted a small island named Isla Fuerte, was, which was a place where merchants processed salt. Ojeda took captives and gold objects there and then moved to the eastern side of the Gulf to an Indian town, to the Indian town of Uraba. There, Ojeda and his men uh, set up shop and raided the area in search of more gold, food, and slaves. Um, by this point, they were also out of supplies, I should mind you, so raiding for food was a necessity, essentially. So, uh, by the time they arrived to Yoraba, essentially, Ujeda's force was diminished by lack of rations, and not to mention the spanking they'd received at Cartagena. The conquistadors, though, heard of a town uh, and, or a chief named Tirisu or Terifu, who was reputed to be in possession of a rich gold mine. But when they attacked, Ojeda found that the natives of Yoraba were just as tough as those of Cartagena. They were repulsed with poison arrows, and of the original 300, Ojeda's force was reduced soon to fewer than 70 men. Ojeda and these hungry survivors found themselves entrapped in the fort that they built, which they named San Sebastian, and besieged inside. So basically... They were trapped uh, at the Gulf of Uraba on the eastern side uh, of West Panama, of, of excuse me, West Colombia, in a sweatbox, in a sweatbox, surrounded by angry Indians wielding poison arrows. As a result, Peter Martyr tells us that quote, the complaints of the men against Ojeda increased from day to day. They accused him of having deceived them. Unquote. Reading the writing on the wall. Ojeda took his one remaining ship and promptly left, promising his companions to return in less than 50 days, and leaving his settlers under the command of one of his officers, a certain Francisco Pizarro, who, in case you don't know, will be the future conquistador of, of Peru. At any rate, Ojeda go went to Hispaniola to look for help, or at least that's what he told everyone when he got on his ship and left them in a sweatbox. But instead of actually getting help and coming back, Ojeda discovered when he arrived at Hispaniola that he was under investigation for, quote, crimes committed in his province and elsewhere, unquote. He promptly hid himself in a monastery and died in a state of extreme poverty at Santo Domingo in 1515. Ojeda's partner, Fernandez de Enciso, ended up getting a ship of new recruits and that was how the tiny, weakened force under Francisco Pizarro were saved from San Sebastian. 
Pizarro and the 60-some survivors of Otheda's expedition waited, the 50 days, mind you, before deciding that that no-good son of a bitch Ojeda was not coming back after all. So they boarded the brigantines at their disposal and abandoned Yoraba. So Enciso didn't find uh, Pizarro and the men there. Peter Martyr tells us that natives had attacked the Spanish under Pizarro with, quote, such audacity and arrogance as left no home either of peace or conquest, unquote. Pizarro and the Spanish could think of nothing to do except to attempt to sail to Spain in the two small barks they constructed. But they couldn't leave yet. There were too many men under the command of Pizarro for their mall to fit on the barks. No one was willing to remain behind, and so they continued to wait at San Sebastian, quote, till famine and wretchedness still made a farther reduction, and this melancholy object soon accomplished, unquote. They embarked. Instead of escaping to Spain, one of the vessels was immediately swallowed by the sea. The terrified captain of the surviving other vessel, one Francisco Pizarro, in case you're wondering, ended up mm, abandoning the idea to go back to Spain after that, and ended up taking refuge instead in the harbor of Cartagena. And that was where they were eventually saved when the fleet of Enciso arrived eventually to look for them. Now, Enciso was happy to give Pizarro command of the, his reinforcements, and not to mention his store of food and supplies. But Enciso had been partners with Ojeda, and he made the condition that they, those guys needed to return to Yoraba, where they were supposed to be. Well, invigorated enough by food, Pizarro sailed west again, back to the Gulf of Yoraba, now in charge of 200 men. But his hopes were very short-lived. The main cargo ship was wrecked just as it entered the harbor of Yoraba, and most of the supplies and animals were immediately lost. Beyond that, once they landed at Yoraba, they discovered the fort of San Sebastian had been burned by vengeful Chipcham natives the moment they left. So Pizarro and the other survivors and the reinforcements were in basically just as bad a spot as they had been before, hungry and now without even a fort. The Spanish hunted and gathered for food. Um, and while they did this, Chibcham bowmen shot at them with poison arrows. Within a few weeks, the situation was completely untenable. And that is when Vasco Nunez de Balboa enters history. Now, more on him and what follows uh, as the survivors of Ojeda's expedition in, in Yoraba. We're going to get, we're going to return to this. But we, to, in order to do any of that, to talk about Vasco de, Nunez de Balboa, and in fact, to continue the story of Ojeda's survivors, the men under Pizarro, we need to get caught up on the other expedition to Tierra Firm, that of Nisueza, the expedition to Veragua. Now, Diego de Nisueza, Nisueza, I don't know how I'm pronouncing that right or not. He sailed in 1506, just like Ojeda. And just like Ojeda, he headed straight to Cartagena, though, of course, in his case, he was supposed to be there. Uh, charged by King Ferdinand, if you recall, to govern Veragua, and with 800 very eager conquistadors under his command. And that was exactly when things started to go wrong. For starters, he completely missed Veragua. And... 
not just uh, Cartagena, where he intended to harbor, but all of Veragua. Nisuesa refused the advice of the more experienced sailors under him, and he sailed along the coast of Central America instead for some time completely unaware of his error. Eventually, he wound up way, way, way in farthest reaches of western Yoruba, somewhere off the coast of what is now modern-day Nicaragua, and what his contemporaries would have called the Mosquito Coast. There, Nisuedza stopped at the Mosquito Coast and said, ah, here's a great place to build a fort. The result was a pitiful excuse for a fort, which he named Nombre de Dios. And then Nisuedza, uh, after that, decided to divide his men and fleet. He left some of the men at the fort, while he and the others went in three ships. Now, Nisuedza, and on the ship he was at, promptly lost sight of the other two ships, so in effect, the fleet was promptly broken up into three parts. Then Nisuesa's caravel was, uh, Nisuesa basically ran his caravel aground. It was stuck on a sandball, sandbar, and there he and his men nearly starved to death until eventually they were rescued by the other two ships when they came to look for him. Now, in the meantime, while they were stuck, Nisuesa said, well, while we're past the time, we're going to raid this village over there. The failed raid that resulted ended up costing 60 of his men their lives. Now, while this was going on, the other two ships likewise engaged in their own unsuccessful raids on villages in the coast, and they experienced losses. Another ship was lost when a dozen Spaniards decided they had enough of all this, and they tried to steal it so that they could set up their own sort of independent life somewhere else in the Americas, which sounds fucking awesome, by the way. But as they departed, the tide, quote, rolled in on the coast with dreadful roarings, dashing them against the rocks and which sank the bark before the eyes of their companions, unquote. Things were not going well at all, even for the guys who tried to escape. Despite the fact, um, now, despite the fact that guys keep dying, they were still running out of food as well, excuse me. Now, those who had survived these initial assaults were sent on foraging parties. Many more ended up getting killed. And after that, Finally, Nisueza and his survivors decided they, they got, had to get the hell out of here. They were literally in a living hell, and they needed to leave. Just nine months after Nisueza had set out with a host of 800 conquistadors, a disorganized handful of fewer than 200, quote, emaciated and dejected wretches, unquote, remained alive on the Mosquito Coast. Eventually, they would leave and make their way to the Gulf of Uraba. Uh, they needed to be rescued. But in order to tell the story of how they got rescued, we have to first properly introduce Vasco Nunez de Balboa to our story. Vasco Nunez de Balboa is the most important conquistador of any of these so-called, quote, minor voyages, unquote. I'll wager you've heard of him. Even if all you know about him is his name, and that he, quote-unquote, discovered the South Sea, or what we would call the Pacific Ocean. But he was not a great captain, at least not at first. 
in fact, of all the men we have spoken about thus far. Balboa uh, was most like Francisco Roldan, if you remember the conquistador who led the first rebellion against Columbus. Balboa came to the New World on the voyage of Rodrigo de Bastides, uh, in which Bastides had mapped Panama. Balboa ultimately settled in Hispaniola as a planter, but he went broke there, and he didn't know what to do. Balboa was uh, harassed by his creditors as a result, and he was going to lose his farm. He was desperate, penniless, and in that desperation, he grabbed his sword, a suit of clothes, and he stowed away on a ship. The ship of Martin de Enciso, which was he was preparing to aid the struggling colonial efforts of Ojeda in Nisueza. The bankrupt conquistador Balboa lowered himself into a cask and had that cask lowered into, uh, or excuse, had that cask, that barrel lowered into the hold of Enciso's ship along with the 100 other and 50 other conquistadors, horses, arms, and other provisions on board. Enciso's reinforcements then sailed to Ojeda's old headquarters where Peter Martyr tells us they found the fortress and houses formerly built reduced to ashes, and what was left of the expedition under the command of Francisco de Pizarro, which was about 50 men. Now, as you might imagine, Enciso was furious when he discovered uh, the stowaway Balboa on board, but Balboa had leadership qualities that most men just don't have. And despite this inauspicious beginning, Vasco Nunez de Balboa soon began to make use of these talents. Balboa argued that they must depart Yoraba, not to go back home, which was where most of the survivors from Ojeda's expedition wanted to go, but instead they needed to cross over to the other side of the gulf. While that side of the gulf technically belonged to Nisueza and not to Ojeda, Balboa successfully argued that despite that little inconvenient fact, the natives on the western side of the gulf did not use poison arrows, something he remembered when he had been upon the first voyage to the New World with Bastides, who had, quote-unquote, discovered Panama. Now, according to Don Manuel Quintana, author of The Life of Vasco Nunez de Baboa, quote, these words seem to restore them from death to life and to inspire them all with new courage, unquote. So, the Spaniards uh, left the side of the Gulf of Uraba um, to go to uh, the other side, the western side, what the Chipcham called Darien, uh, under the command of, uh, of Pizarro and Enciso, essentially. Now, the people who lived in the village near to where the Spaniards landed had when they saw the Spaniards coming, quote, placed their effects and families in safety and took post on a rock where they courageously awaited the Spaniards, unquote. Las Casas says they consisted of about 500 warriors led by a cacique named Kimako. A battle followed in which the Spaniards won, and this gave them the opportunity to begin construction of a town which would become Santa Maria. The cacique Kimako, who knew the Spaniards desired gold, gave them metal, uh, gave them a weight of gold equal to eight or 10,000 pesos in consequence of his defeat. 
The Spaniards, as you might imagine, were quite pleased with this, but what they really wanted was to know where Kamako had gotten that gold. Kamako said the gold came from a distance of about 20 leagues away. But upon consulting his counselors, afterwards decided maybe he shouldn't tell the Castilians exactly where the gold came from, under the correct presumption, of course, that if the Spanish knew where to find gold, they would never leave. As you might imagine, that didn't make the Spanish conquistadors particularly happy at all. Camaco ended up hiding in one of the villages of his vassals, and the Spaniards started to search for him. When he was found, he was put to the torture to make him surrender his secret. Kamako revealed the location of another town under his rule and then escaped. He was able to gather his people and to defend their town from the Entrada which followed. The battle was fierce, and the Spanish sources say that for some time the results were in doubt. But in the end, the superior weaponry of the Spanish won out, and the battle terminated, was terminated, quote, by the slaughter and flight of the terrified Indians, unquote. After the victory... The Spanish entered Kimeko's town, where they found many ornaments of fine gold, an abundance of provisions, and a great store of cotton vestments. The Spanish considered Darien pacified after this battle, which basically meant that now, with the war with Indians was over, they were free to war with each other. And Siso's successful razias against Kamako's people meant that the Spanish had at this point obtained 12,000 pesos worth of gold to this point, a sum which, quote, did no discredit to the command and authority which he exercised, unquote, according to Quintana. In possession of this great treasure, though, the conquistadors' lusts were truly awakened, unquote, the amount of spoil taken had excited in their breasts a spirit of covetousness and an ardent expectation of desire and gain, unquote. The conquistadors were convinced, or convinced themselves, that Nsaisa was not giving them their fair share of, those, of the gold either. He is a miser, they said, who covets for himself all of the fruit of our efforts and abuses an authority which he has no just claim. Now, I'm not sure Nsaisa was taking more of his fair share or not, as if killing people and robbing them of their uh, money it, like really entitles you to a share of something. But at any rate, it, it is very possible that he was. It's also possible, though, that the other conquistadors were simply using the fact that he wasn't supposed to be in charge anyway. Uh, Nsaisa was supposed to be in charge, so, so what rules really applied? And soon enough, the conquistadors were split between those who remained loyal to Incisa and those who were not. Some who were not began to be drawn to the leadership of Vasco Nunez del Beboa, and some into a third camp that argued that since they were in the jurisdiction of Diego de Nesueza, they should send for him and place themselves under his command. Balboa's faction proved to be the most powerful, and this majority insisted that the government they formed was good. And if they were going to follow a single leader, quote, they could not follow a better leader than Balboa, unquote. Now, this majority had scarcely resolved, quote, to deprive Enciso of the command and to establish a municipal government, unquote, however, which was going to be run by two judges, one Balboa and another, one Martin Zamudio, by the way, when their debates on all of this were interrupted by the sound of cannon. 
Shortly after that, two vessels arrived, under the command of a certain Diego Enriquez de Comenares, who, as it turned out, was bringing 60 men, supplies, and arms to aid the colony of Diego de Nesueza. Colmenares had been looking for Nesueza for some time, with no luck, of course, because Nesueza was lost on the Mosquito Coast. So, Colmenares decided to remain a Darien, and divided with the inhabitants there the provisions and arms he'd brought. Quote, this act of liberality gained him universal favor, unquote. Colmenares used this favor to change enough minds so that the faction arguing for Nesueza to be the rightful ruler grew to be the largest. Shortly afterwards, it was decided then, in that case, that Colmenares and a few other conquistadors should go and look for Nesueza once again. Now, as you'll recall, Nesueza, once the proud commander of 800 bold conquistadors, was at this point reduced to misery, and stuck at Nombre de Dios with a meager 60 survivors by this point, quote, who expected death in a state of utter despondency, all hope of relief having abandoned them, unquote. Well, needless to say, they were delighted to be rescued when Colmenares found them. Nisueza was informed that he was, in fact, the survivors, uh, that, that he was, in fact, um, going to be leading the group of survivors of Ojeda's expedition who had settled into a small encampment on his, Nisueza's, side of the Gulf of Uraba. Now, Nisueza could have apparently been slightly more grateful to be rescued, because uh, immediately he just started ordering Colmenares uh, around. He had Colmenares land ahead of him to let the colonists know that Nisueza was, as soon as he landed, going to be conf confiscating all of their gold, since, after all, they'd gotten it from his lands and without his permission. Okay, said Colmenares, who followed that order and gave the news back at Santa Maria. And so everyone was pretty well pissed off even before he arrived. When he did land, Nisueta ordered one conquistador, Pedro de Alano, to be put in irons and imprisoned, accusing him, accusing him of treason, since he had taken the role of acting governor of Darien by this time. And Nisueta wanted to lay down the law. Before long, quote, in a like manner, Nisueza reproached everybody in arrogant terms, unquote. So, of course, the two parties of conquistadors, who wished to be led not by Nisueza, but by Balboa or Enciso, respectively, promptly rose up and united, quote, to overthrow the wretched Nisueza. The inhabitants sallied forth, receiving Nisueza with loud cries and threats, ordering him back to Nombre de Dios. Nesueza, on finding himself so desperately situated, felt as if the heavens were falling upon his head, unquote. Manuel José Quintana, author, like I said, of the life of Vasco Núñez de Baboa, wrote that Nesueza begged the colonists that even if they rejected his governorship, quote, they would admit him at least as their equal and companion, and even if this were too much to ask, he implored them to cast him into prison and let him live there, confined amongst them since that would be a milder fate than to be sent back to Nombre de Dios to perish from hunger or arrow wounds. He reminded them of the enormous capital he had sunk in the undertaking and the, the deplorable miseries he had endured. Policy, however, has no compassion and avarice no ear. 
The general irritation increased every moment and could not be appeased, unquote. Nisueza was seized, forced into his brigantine, and ordered to sail immediately. He was told if he wished he could present his case before the king. The colonists of Santa Maria put him and 18 other men, uh, who were essentially his loyalists, into, quote, a ruinous little vessel they possessed, badly provisioned, unquote. Nisueza was never seen or heard from again. Now, Balboa might have been thinking to himself at this point, well, that worked well, I should try that again. Because not long afterwards, quote, Vasco Nunez accused Enciso of having usurped the jurisdiction, with no better title than he'd derived from Alonso de Ojeda, unquote. Quintana tells us that in comparison to Balboa's supporters, the numbers of men who supported Enciso constituted but a feeble dependence. Enciso was brought to trial, his property was confiscated, and he was jailed. But eventually, he actually convinced his chapter, his captors that in, he didn't need to be jailed at all. His proper punishment should be to be banished and returned to Spain. Now, that happened. And once Bal Enciso was banished, Balboa stood alone in Santa Maria as the sole authoritative figure of the first colony that was having any kind of success on Tierra Firma. But Balboa had also made a crucial error. In sending Enciso packing, he, he essentially made himself a lifelong enemy back in Spain. And Balboa, regardless of whatever support he had from the men of Santa Maria, and even more regardless of whatever support he had from the Chipchan, he had no legal backing from the start in Spain for his command. He was a man without title, without commission, and without fortune. Balboa was the first European in the New World who had no legal status, but led anyway, by his ability to win and hold followers. That meant having enemies in Spain a bit dangerous. And the error he made by ousting Enciso and sending him off on a ship back to Spain made, meant that from this point forward, Balboa was going to need to continue defending himself from legal charges levied at him, essentially, by Enciso. Now, in the meantime, though, Balboa and the Spaniards, under his command now, really started the construction of the town near Darien, from which the Gulf got its name. Uh, the official name of the Villa was Santa Maria la Antigua. It was populated with a mixture of adventurers from Spain and men like Balboa who had not struck it rich on Hispaniola. They were poorly supplied and depended mainly on their allies at Darien for survival and food. Balboa was able to keep the men from pillaging and destroying the nearby Indian communities. It's almost remarkable in itself that he was able to do that. But even more remarkable was that he did that while also improving the morale of the men at Santa Maria. Balboa used a strategy wherein he confronted native villages with a show of force. And after scaring them, he would offer friendship, and then he would live up to it. He did not introduce a repartimiento, and neither did he require a fixed tribute like Columbus. Nor did he attempt to simply eliminate caciques like Ovando. 
In contrast, Balboa established himself essentially as like the great white chief, the great Tiba, who treated others as vassals. And within the limits of this relationship with Balboa as the, the king of kings, as you will, he allowed himself to have friends. Now, the Chipcham lived in numerous kingdoms, and these were often in conflict with one another. And so Balboa's strategy was perfect for installing himself as the chief bringer of peace for the entire region. See, by, protecting, by promising to protect the natives from violence and abuse, not just from other Spaniards, but, but by, from, from other uh, caciques who were at war with each other, Balboa was able to promise protection from violence um, to the natives and in return uh, receive food, trade goods, and services pretty much whenever he wanted or needed them. And, and in doing so, Balboa became known as Tiba, uh, the Tiba of Darien to the Chipcham, the great white king of Spaniard and Chipchan alike. Now, in this situation, under Balboa's control, Santa Maria's economy functioned far better than any other part of Spain's American empire in the Caribbean. In the Caribbean, there were massive enslavement and death camps. In Balboa's Darien, quote, Indians went and came, brought provisions and sold them for beads, knives, and toys from Castile, unquote. In addition to starting the construction of the Via of Santa Maria, Balboa asked for and received permission to govern his new town. From Diego Columbus, the governor of Hispaniola. Now, in case you're wondering, can he do that? Well, no. In the eyes of the Spanish crown, this is not the legal way of doing things. Balboa dispatched, though, a ship to Spain to confirm uh, with this with the Spanish crown. crown. Now, the captain of that ship gave Balboa some important advice, that if Balboa seriously wanted him to send uh, a letter to Spain telling, him, telling the Spanish uh, king that of what Balboa had done, and in addition that he had gotten permission to be governor from Diego Columbus, that he was going to be seen as a usurper. And if he didn't want to be recalled and forced to explain himself, and likely jailed and quite possibly executed, he better do something important and fast in order to ingratiate himself to Ferdinand. Balboa took that advice to heart, and he got to work. Now, his first six months as governor was essentially seen overseeing the building of Santa Maria, as well as the agricultural fields required to feed the Via, Chibchan labor, of course, did most of the actual work, uh, but he, Babel also began prospecting for gold. And this was found in the streams coming down out of the mountains about a dozen miles west of Darien. He also began to learn from the Indians about where he might go to do more important things that he could impress Ferdinand with. And some of the Chimchan who came to trade in Santa Maria, quote, boasted of the abundance and wealth of the province of Coiba, distant 30 miles westward, unquote, of Darien. Balboa promptly set Francisco Pizarro, and he raided the province, capturing slaves and gold before returning to Santa Maria and telling Balboa and the other conquistadors about how awesome of a time he had and how wealthy the people uh, were um, of Coiba. 
Now, Baboa and the Spanish learned about Coiba basically from just interacting with the natives who came to Santa Maria from Darien to trade. But they also learned a lot about the region because in Coiba, Pizarro found two naked conquistadors. The men were painted in the Indian mode and had been living amongst the Chibcham for some time. They had originally arrived on Nisuez's fleet, and I don't know exactly in the way that they managed to be living amongst the Chibcham. Perhaps they fled Nisuez's terrible colony. Perhaps they were captured by Indians as slaves. Perhaps they were marooned as punishment. Maybe they just preferred the life in the New World to that of Spain. Whatever the story of their initial placement with the Chibchan, the two men had been treated well by the cacique of Coiba, and now they spoke the local language. Balboa kept one of the men at Santa Maria and sent the other back to Coiba to, quote, enrich the governor by his observations, unquote. It wasn't until late spring of 1511 when Balboa finally went out on campaign himself. He did so in command of 130 men of the, Santa, of, of the men of Santa Maria. He left with the best arms which the colony could supply, instruments proper for smoothing his road, and thus equipped through the mountain brickets, thickets, and brambles, he embarked for Coiba, first sailing into brigantines uh, before uh, heading inland. Balboa found Coiba practically depopulated. The cacique and the locals all fled, knowing what to expect after Pizarro's entrada, so Balboa went northwest along the coast into another province, the neighboring province of Careta. The cacique of Careta was prepared for the arrival of Balboa, and he became a willing Spanish vassal. He offered friendship and service to Balboa. He offered a great feast to the Spaniards. But he offered no stores of food and gold or other treasure when Balboa first arrived. Creta told Balboa, though, that his people would be happy to provide this tribute, if not for his enemy Panca, another nearby cacique with whom Careta was at war. Balboa thought about Careta's proposal, and then he did the sort of thing that made him such a successful conquistador. He agreed to Careta's proposal, and then late in the night that same day, kidnapped the cacique and his family, demanded the people he ruled to bring him the gold which Balboa desired and which had not been part of the initial tribute, and the next day, the Chibcham indeed did provide that tribute of gold, which Balboa and the Spaniards required. And then Balboa returned Coretta and his family and gave the friendship. As a final means of sealing the alliance, Coretta, quote, gave his beautiful daughter to Balboa as a wife, unquote. Balboa afterwards and his 130 Spaniards were joined on the way to Panca with Careta and his army of 2,000 warriors. Together, they sacked the capital of Panca. Though Panca, the, ca the cacique, was not there, in the face of this alliance, the cacique fled, quote, abandoning his land to the ravage and ruin prepared for it by the Indians and Spaniards, unquote. At any rate, Panca was an inland state. It lay at one end of a lowland basin that runs through the Central American Isthmus. And so Balboa's discovery of this lowland basin is going to be important later. Now, he didn't realize it at the time, but this basin at the lands of Ponca would allow uh, Balboa to easily make his way to the Pacific later. And instead of 
exploring the potential of the lowland basin. In fact, Balboa decided it was in fact best to return to the Atlantic coast. Uh, and after doing that, he turned northwest, um, visiting another neighbor of Careta. This is the Cacique Camogre, the chief, a chief of 10,000 and the head of state of an army of 3,000 Chipchan warriors. Camogre sent messengers to Balboa and the advancing conquistadors, letting it be known as they made their way into his lands that he had heard of the Castilians' great valor and wished to ally with them. Later, when Balboa and his army neared, Camogre, quote, sallied forth at the head of his principal vassals and his seven sons to receive Balboa on the road, unquote. He treated them to a lavish feast at his home, which must have been pretty spectacular to behold, since Camogre's bohio was 150 paces long, 50 paces wide, and ornately carved with, filled with ornately carved beans, uh, beams, excuse me, a finely decorated floor, and a stone wall outside for defense. Below was a cellar stocked with wine floors and wooden kegs filled with tasty alcoholic beverages made from yucca, sweet potatoes, maize, and palm fruits. Of more interest to the Spaniards, of course, were the cacique's ancestors who hung from the rafters. Gold masks covered their faces. The Spaniards were lodged in different houses in the town and provided with victuals in abundance, with men and women to serve them, and they were further entertained by Comogre's eldest son. He gave Balboa and each of the Spaniards whom he recognized as chiefs of the party, quote, from their manner and appearance, unquote, 60 slaves and 4,000 pieces of gold of different weight. The gold was worked in gold objects, and the Spanish immediately started to melt it down, of course, and having separated a fifth for the king, began to divide the rest amongst themselves. This, of course, caused a dispute. And the men, before long, the conquistadors were threatening each other with uh, violence, and the sight of the Spaniards doing this, taking fine gold jewelry and prized works of art crafted by goldsmiths, and melting it all down into gold bars to weigh it, was something that horrified the prince. Camogre's son grew angry as he watched the Spaniards first melt the treasure and then quarrel over what amounted to a pile of raw materials. He overthrew the scales in which they were weighing the precious metal and exclaimed, Why quarrel for such a trifle? If such is your thirst for gold, that for your sake, that for its sake you forsake your own country and come to trouble those of strangers, I will show you a province where you may gather by the handful the object of your desire. Unquote. You might think that this would kiss off the conquistadors, but the prince's speech continued, and he enthralled them. He told them that to conquer this mighty realm that he spoke of, they would require more men, a thousand men. If Balboa could bring one thousand conquistadors, then the prince of Camagre would lead them to this far-off realm and into battle himself. Together, they could subjugate chiefs from, far off, from this far-off land of riches, and the Spaniards could have all the gold they wanted. The prince told Balboa that these foreign chiefs traveled on a different ocean than the one Balboa arrived upon, and had a great sailing vessels, as large as his own. The prince of Comagre could take him to this place, so that Balboa himself could see the other sea, and the ships of another kingdom which sailed upon it. This was fall of the year 1511, 
and Vasco Nunez de Balboa learned firsthand at this time that another ocean existed on the other side of the isthmus. Two, the prince had alerted the Spanish to the first time of the existence of the Inca Empire. Balboa returned to Darien soon after his encounter with the prince, quote, rich in the spoils of Ponca, rich in the presence of his friends, and still richer in the golden hopes which the future afforded him, unquote. More than just dreams of future wealth, of course, Balboa succeeded in making four different Chipcham states vassals of Spain. Now, this news in Spain that Balboa succeeded, where so far many others had failed, was received well by the king. On December 23, 1511, Balboa was rewarded by Ferdinand, who appointed Balboa governor and captain of the province of Darien. Merry Christmas, Mr. Balboa. But with that said, Ferdinand's decision specifically did not mention terms of tenure for Balboa's governorship. And if you're thinking, essentially, this is a message to Balboa saying, good job, but you better keep going, well, you're right. So Balboa resolved to continue achieving great things. And by great things, I mean to get more gold and other forms of wealth, like slaves, to share with his king Ferdinand. So, Balboa turned his attention south in search of gold, slaves, and whatever other wealth he might obtain by trading or raiding. He left the potential discovery of what the Spanish called El Mar del Sur, or the South Sea, and instead took his men into the interior of the Americas. The Indian town of Darien sits deep or sat deep in the bay of the Gulf of Urava, in a shallow delta that formed a pocket of the bay near the rivers which feed into it, the Atrato River and the Leon River, in, in case you're wondering. Now, those two rivers meet at the Gulf of Urava from the south, and over millions of years, the path of these rivers created hundreds of miles of low, wide basin that is one of the wettest, rainiest regions of the American tropics and which comprises parts of northwest Colombia today. The reason why Balboa wished to explore one of the wettest, rainiest regions of the American tropics was because at the other end of these hundreds of miles of swamps and tropical rainforests was supposedly the seat of a great cacique named Dabiba, who was said by all the natives to be fabulously wealthy. And this is basically a continuing theme throughout the conquest of the Americas. I mean, if you haven't noticed it by now, there's going to be a dance that occurs every time, basically, that Balboa or any conquistador arrives at a, at a, at a, at a Chipchan state. The Spanish show up, make a show of force, ask for gold, and are promptly told by the natives, oh, oh, gold? Oh, yeah, gold, you want gold? Well, here, we have a little bit of gold. Here you go. But let me tell you something. Boy, you really ought to see how much gold there is over this way. Hey, let me show you over here. Now, of course, Balboa and the Spanish would never find their way to Dabiba without Chibchan guides. And I want to point this out. Because you're thinking, well, yeah, it's obvious that the natives would show the Spanish where the gold is. 
or would be willing to give it to them after being presented by such awe-inspiring weaponry and armor. Well, if, if that's all you're thinking, then, then you're not really getting the whole picture, because that is half of it. But what the reality, though, is that once the natives understood what it was that the Spanish wanted, well, that gave the Chibchan a certain amount of power as well. Now, less obvious power, perhaps, than the thunderous blast of a cannon or the charge of cavalry. But the power of information is nevertheless mighty indeed. Far beyond the Spanish need for guides and translators, like what I'm getting at is that when conquistadors encountered natives and asked for gold, the answer the conquistadors generally received back at the natives was, Gold? Oh, what a coincidence. My enemies happen to have lots of gold. Let's go attack them together immediately. No Spanish conquests of the Americas basically were successful without native allies. And often, such as in the case of Camogre and Balboa attacking Pancra with 200 Spanish conquistadors and 2,000 Chibchan warriors, I mean, the Spanish are outnumbered by such an extraordinary extent that this is remarkable. Now, this is going to be a continuing theme of the conquest. Now, we're not going to really dive in deep into this topic until uh, for a few episodes when we get to the conquest of Mexico, uh, really. But I want to keep planting this seed. If Balboa and 130 men attacked Ponca, alongside the Cacique Camogre and 2,000 Chibchan warriors. But who really conquered Ponca? Well, with that little seed planted, I guess I'll continue. Balboa and most of the men under his command, 160 to be precise, left Santa Maria another time, a se- you know, a second time, this time with guides from Darien in search of Dabaiba, Biba, I don't know how to pronounce that. They went upriver um, of the Rio Leon and discovered there a village about 30 miles, um, mind you, 30 miles through the swamps and rainforests of Central America. Might not be a walk in the park, as they say. So I don't know how long it took them to get there. But anyway, the villagers of this small farming and fishing village fled in fear. But they had left in the middle of a village about 7,000 Castellanos worth of gold as tribute to the Spanish. The conquistadors, of course, did not bother to mention what sort of golden artworks had been left behind. The craftsmanship and the artistic value of the gold of the Americas was not important. But we may infer that they quickly melted and weighed it in order to discern that it was worth about 7,000 Castellanos. They returned then to Santa Maria with the uh, loot they'd obtained after this expedition, which prop may very well have come from Dabaiba, the small fishing village uh, that uh, was described as unlikely to have held uh, a large sum of gold like that. And more likely, it was left as a tribute uh, from a more powerful lord elsewhere, perhaps Lord Dabaiba. Now, this is important uh, because it shows that news of the Spanish and what they were after was by this point in time advancing faster through the Americas than the Spanish conquistadors were themselves. Now, 
with the the uh, Lyon River uh, explored, and uh, that being a bust as far as a way to get to Dabaiba, Balboa ventured up the other river that emptied into the Gulf of Uraba. This is the Atrato River, which Balboa, mind you, promptly renamed the Rio San Juan. The expedition left in June 1512. And according to Balboa, was following to, in order to follow up on, quote, sure news that 50 leagues up the river of San Juan are very rich mines on both sides, unquote. Balboa and his men made their way up the river and saw village after village of four poor fishermen, 60 villages of them, in fact, in total, uh, all, all in count. Each one of these uh, various villages uh, had about 10 households each. Um, they saw about 60, that is, uh, up the 40 miles upriver they traveled. So we're talking about a very populated region. Now, anyway, the Spanish then moved off the Atrato River. Uh, it's not too far away from another river called the Rio San Juan. Well, excuse me, to the Rio Negro, the Rio San Juan to the Rio Negro. And Balboa and his men embarked upon that river in native canoes, which are called Urus by the Chibchan. They made their way another 15 miles farther ahead before they found the seat of a, of a cacique, a large town of about 500 homes that was not Dabiba. Instead, they had stumbled upon the settlement of the cacique uh, Adabiba, which does sound very close to Dabiba, but in fact, apparently, was a very different person and a pretty different place. At any rate, I, I wouldn't I imagine they were related, but Adabiba lived in a treehouse, which is pretty cool if you ask me. It also gave him the opportunity, when Balboa and the Spaniards arrived, and asked him to come down and talk to him, that they could go fuck themselves. This, in turn, gave Balboa and the Spanish the opportunity to begin chopping down the tree. Adabiba changed his mind pretty quickly after that, and when he came down, he explained that he had no gold, but he could probably go find some. Balboa said, okay, but I'm keeping your family hostage, and we're going back to Santa Maria. He left 30 men in the territory to wait Adabiba who, incidentally, never did come back. Now, after Balboa returned to Santa Maria, they would have, quote, perished to a man, unquote, if not for what Manuel Jose Quintana calls one of those incidents which seems to belong rather to the novelist than to the historian. Now, a few of the Chibcham caciques, whose territories had been overrun and sacked, had formed a secret confederacy and they prepared to fall with all their forces on Santa Maria. But the conspiracy was uncovered by one of Balboa's native mistresses. Her brother, quote, disguised under the habit of those pacific Indians who brought provisions to our people, came to see her, told her one day to act cautiously and take care of herself, that the princes of the country could no longer suffer the insolence of the invaders, and was resolved to fall upon them by land and sea. A hundred canoes, five thousand warriors, and abundance of provisions collected in the town of Tichiri. These were provisions, preparations sufficient for the blow they meditated. He told her on what day the assault would take place and went away, advising her to retire to a secure place that she might escape being confounded in the general slaughter. Unquote. Quintana continues, though that no sooner 
then did the girl find herself alone then impelled either by love or fear she discovered all she had heard to balboa he commanded her to call back her brother who came was taken and was put to the torture until he declared all he knew unquote. the man told balboa that the that the cacique kemako was chiefly responsible and had plotted the death of balboa for some time all thus being revealed balboa marched by land with sixty men and sent some more by water and sent many more by water excuse me kemako was found in tichiri there with the other chiefs who headed this enterprise and quote, a multitude of inferior people the latter were pardoned but kemako was shot with arrows his lords were hung unquote. after balboa executed kemako he wrote another letter back to ferdinand it was early january fifteen thirteen one of his biggest points of emphasis besides having put down the attempted revolt was and as such peace continued was that dabiba was close he knew how to find it it was only two days travel eastward from where he had earlier turned his expedition back from adabiba and according to balboa um it was uh it was, I, excuse me i should point out that recall balboa did not get to adabiba uh his description of dabiba was of a land he never saw it was just described to him by chip jam people um and on a side note i think it's interesting that baboa didn't go directly to dabiba from adabiba um but if you think about it low supply sick men and or the fear of potentially being met with a native army while being stuck inland and thus being cut off from the coast any combination of those things is probably why they turned back and didn't continue on um carl orton sauer argues that quote had balboa been a different sort of captain he would have marched men off to dabiba and looted it unquote and undoubtedly many if not most of the spanish hidalgos in the americas would have attempted to do just that either they would have succeeded or died but if balboa had done that well maybe he would have ended up like the numerous men before him who had died foolishly um not the least of which uh, you know the Oje, he had he replaced ojeda and nisueza who both failed before him uh, for making foolish raids so uh, besides that fact um i think i i don't know if i agree that carl orton sauer just wasn't the type of man to do it but i think i do agree with him that balboa understood that the bible was a place where gold jewelry was processed um and in such large quantities that it seemed to fuel a trade in gold throughout central america and the caribbean and that makes Dabiba fascinating to me and probably to you as well as countless historians and archaeologists not to mention spanish conquistadors but balboa was specifically looking for places where mine where gold could be mined he didn't need metalsmiths from some city somewhere or artists uh, no matter how wealthy uh, uh city's inhabitants might be what he understood was that the gold he would find in dabiba would be largely within family crypts and the mummies of the ancestors of the chipchan it wasn't really going anywhere he could come back later at any rate balboa didn't just write back to ferdinand to describe the places he'd been and the people he'd met and 
We might even wonder if everything Balboa stated so far in his letter about Dabaiba and the wealth therein wasn't also designed to attempt to maybe to stoke the king's interest in Balboa's plan for the future. Because uh, as the letter continued, Balboa revealed that he also intended to discover the South Sea, which he promised Ferdinand was very close to Santa Maria. And beyond that, Balboa described the lands of the Inca to Ferdinand in the same way that the Prince of Comogre had earlier described the wealth of the Inca to Balboa. He wrote to his king that, quote, certain caciques have gold quantity in their houses. Keep it in crib like ma cribs like maize, because they have so much gold they do not much to keep it in baskets. They say that all the rivers of those Sierras carry gold, and that there are large nuggets in quantity, unquote. Balboa requested 500 soldiers in order to, quote, enter the country. He explained that his request, his request, that if Ferdinand would give him the men, Balboa would earn enough riches for Ferdinand that the Spanish king could, quote, conquer a large part of the world, unquote. He reminded Ferdinand that he, Balboa, succeeded on Tierra Firm, where no Nisueza and Ojeda had failed. Then, Balboa finished his letter by stating that, no, 500 men just wasn't going to cut it. One thousand men is what Balboa really needed. Yes, he doubled his request for men within his letter requesting men. Well, that should work out nicely, thought the bold Balboa as he signed and sent off the letter. Incidentally, the request had the opposite reaction that he hoped for. However, his claims of success were true. Nisueza and Ojeda had failed horribly, whereas Balboa succeeded. But Balboa also usurped traditional European authority and threw Edonciso out of his own colony, who, mind you, had already lodged numerous complaints against Balboa to Ferdinand before the king even read Balboa's letter. The king had named Balboa interim governor of Darien despite this. And ever since having done so, Enciso just would not shut up. Now, Ferdinand was reading a letter asking for a thousand men and the armaments to make Balboa a powerful military commander. Balboa was asking for the sort of power only once taken to the Americas by Columbus. And Ferdinand had no intention of repeating another Columbus. Instead of getting the support Balboa desired to make an attempt at conquering the Inca, his letter had the opposite effect. Now, to be honest, Balboa was one of the very first new men of the Americas, European men who had leadership abilities that meant nothing. And I say European men, I soon in a few more years, they will also start to be uh, what the Spanish called mestizo men. Uh, anyway, uh, these are European men who have leadership abilities that mean absolutely nothing in Europe because of the hierarchical and stagnant world there. But thousands of miles away, uh, far away from the kings and the lords of home, this could turn otherwise unremarkable men into uh, giants of history. In the words of Carl Orton Sauer, however, quote, the time had not yet come for a Cortez or Pizarro to break the bonds of official preferment. Balboa tried too soon and made the mistake of putting his grand design fully and brashly 
before King and Fonseca, unquote. Ferdinand loved Balboa's plan for more conquest of the wealthy parts of South America. He just didn't see the need to keep Balboa in charge. To Ferdinand, Balboa was a tool, just as much of a tool as a war dog was a tool to a conquistador. Like all of his soldiers, um, Balboa was just a tool, and a good, useful tool, but instead of giving Balboa an army, Ferdinand began preparations for an armada that he would use uh, to give to a new governor that he would bring to Tierra Firm. Now, Balboa's uh, letter was sent back um, on a sh after he received some reinforcements. Uh, Diego Columbus sent a ship of 150 conquistadors that had recently arrived at Santo Domingo straight to Tierra Firma. Like, we don't need 150 conquistadors here. Go, go, go. And uh, when that ship returned to Spain, uh, it brought the letter. A second ship that brought more reinforcements later was how Balboa later learned that his letter had been received very poorly back at court. As you might imagine, he was quite alarmed when his letter didn't work, uh, and, and he knew he was running out of time as for what was all intents and purposes was his interim governorship now. Balboa knew he needed to do something to protect himself. He didn't have time to search for any more gold mines in the highlands or to conquer far-off lands as he'd written about so confidently in his letter to Ferdinand. But there was one thing he could do. And at least in the meantime, he had plenty of reinforcements. So perhaps in part to keep his mind off the potential prosecution of him, of what would be taking place in the future for his uh, actions against Enciso, Vasco Nunez began planning an expedition that would lead him to the Mar del Sur. Another ocean awaited the Spanish on the other side of Tierra Firm, and Balboa knew the surest way to obtain more honor for himself and keep himself out of trouble with Ferdinand was by taking possession of it for Ferdinand. It was the rainy season, which made this a terrible idea. But Balboa could not wait. He got his party ready to depart and left Darien in search of the Pacific on the 1st of September, 1513. Now, earlier that spring, uh, in, on, May, excuse me, on May 31st, 1513, Ferdinand ordered officials at Seville to prepare an armada to embark for Tierra Firm with between 800 and 1,000 men under a principal person whom he would order late, whom he would name later. On June 11th, notification was received in Darien that someone would be taken charge of the government from Balboa, and a week later, uh, Ferdinand named Pedro Aria de Avia as captain and governor of Tierra Firm. Now, generally, Pedro Aria de Avia is called Pedrarius, and he was an old aristocratic officer and one of Fonseca's main agents. The next month, on July 28th, Ferdinand ordered de Villa to start proceedings against Balboa regarding the complaints made against him by, by Enciso. One of the first orders of Pedrarius' business, once he arrived in the colony, which was renamed also, by the way, Castilla de Oro, the Golden Castile, um, was to persecute, start this prosecution against Balboa. The fleet, though, would not inv uh, arrive on Tierra Firm all the way until July 1514. But, um, and, th and that's some time away from when, uh, when Balboa found out about it, but uh, the, the writing was on the wall as far as uh, Balboa 
knew the end of his governorship was near. Um, he learned that shortly after leaving Santa Maria in what was to become a four-and-a-half-long voyage that would lead to the Pacific. He took 190 of his most able conquistadors of Santa Maria and 1,000 Chipcham Indians, as well as, quote, a few bloodhounds and sufficient provisions, unquote, and set sail in a brigantine and ten canoes. They sailed along the coast to Careta, where Balboa was warmly welcomed, uh, now that everything was peaceful again, and Balboa was firmly in control of the region, he left the brigantine there and made his way inland to Ponca. Just like the last time Balboa had visited, the cacique of Ponca had fled, but, quote, Vasco Nunez desired to bring him to amicable agreement, and to that end, dispatched after him some Indians of peace who advised him to return to his capital and to fear nothing from the Spaniards, unquote. Ponca returned and exchanged gifts with Balboa, who then, quote, solicited guides and men of labor for his journey over the Sierras, which the cacique bestowed willingly added provisions in great abundance, and they parted friends, unquote. Balboa's skill as diplomat was incredible, and Ponca joined a growing list of Chibcham provinces vassalized to Spain. At any rate, as I mentioned, it was the rainy season, and that meant progress was very slow going. At one point, the party made ten leagues over the course of four days, which indicates they were probably forced to make numerous detours because of flooded lands. Uh, in the dry season, ideally, the voyage would have been much, much shorter. At any rate, the Ponca guides led Balboa straight to the lands of their enemy. Surprise, surprise, not to the Pacific. They visited a cacique named Torrecha, who ruled a province called Coreca, which is basically the whole reason that Ponca had been so eager to provide support to Balboa in the first place, so that because he realized he could use Balboa to punish his enemy. Now, we don't even exactly know exactly where Cuerca was today, somewhere in Panama or Colombia. Uh, but uh, anyway, besides that, Peter Marker gives an otherwise informative account of Balboa's attack on Cuerca, which occurred in the middle of the night at the Spanish custom. They were met on the road outside of a town with, quote, a swarm of ferocious Indians, armed in their usual manner, unquote. The cacique Torrecha led his army and was disposed and prepared to receive the Castilians with a warlike aspect. The Quericons asked the Spaniards what brought them there, what they sought. Torrecha stood before his tribe, dressed in a cotton mantle and followed by his principal lords. When the Spanish did not stop their advance, he gave the signal for combat. The Indians commenced the assault with loud cries and great impetuosity, but soon became terrified by the explosions of the crossbows and muskets. They were easily destroyed or put to flight by the men and bloodhounds who rushed upon them. Turicha and 600 men were left dead on the spot, and the Spaniards, having smoothed away that obstacle, entered the town, which they spoiled of all the gold and values bulls it possessed." Unquote. The plundering of Querica was then specifically justified later by the conquistadors, incidentally, uh, because in this town they found a population of homosexuals within it. Uh, quote, they found a brother of the cacique and other Indians who were dedicated to abominations. Fifty of these wretches were torn to pieces by the dogs, unquote. The account continues that uh, afterwards the account was by these examples Quote, rendered so pacific and submissive that Balboa left all his sick men there, 
dismissed the guides given him by Ponca, and taking fresh ones, pursued his road, unquote. Baboa continued south from Querequa, through thick and tangled woods, across lakes, rugged hills, deep and yawning precipices, deep and rapid rivers, and slight and trembling bridges. Eventually, they reached the ridge which would give him the first sight of the South Sea. Oviedo gives the account, quote, On the 25th of the month of September of the year 1513, at 10 o'clock in the morning, Captain Vasco Nunez, leading all the rest to the ascent of a certain bare mountain, saw from its peak the South Sea before any other Christian of before any other of his Christian companions. He turned joyfully to his men, raising his hands and eyes to the skies, praising Jesus Christ and his glorious mother, the Virgin, Our Lady. Then he sank on his knees and gave thanks to God for the favor that had been granted to him and allowing him to discover that sea and thereby render such a great service to God and to the most Catholic and most serene king of Castile. Unquote. Balboa then began to trek down to the coast of the South Sea and reaching it, and reached it while in the lands of a Chibcham cacique named Chiape. Considering Chiape was not a Christian, Balboa performed, quote, the rites of possession, unquote, known as the requimiento. Then the Spaniards proceeded through the mountain pass, which led them through the Pacific to attack the cacique and his followers, quote, who had prepared to defend the pass with arms. But the noise of the muskets and the ferocity of the war dogs dispersed them in a moment and they fled, leaving many captives. By these, and by their native guides, the Spaniards sent to offer Chiape secure peace and friendship if he came back. Otherwise, the ruin and extermination of his town and his fields. Unquote. Well, Chiape thought about it, and then decided to return to distribute gold and received gifts in exchange with Balboa and some of the Spaniards. Chiape treated Balboa with much kindness, in fact, from that point on. The Spaniards stayed in the town for about two weeks, during which time Balboa sent his captains out to learn further of the environs of the American Isthmus West Coast, and the Indians largely uh, expressed their puzzlement and bewilderment and amusement at uh, how excited Balboa and the Spanish were to find another sea, which to them was just, you know, that one, that sea over there, and not that one. Okay, anyway. Balboa sent three scouts uh, to discover the shortest roads by which the sea might be reached. Um, one of them was Alonzo Martin, and he was the first Spaniard who thus arrived on the Pacific coast. There, Martin entered a canoe, quote, and pushing it into the waves, let it float a little while, and after pleasing himself with having been the first Spaniard who entered the South Sea, returned to seek Balboa, unquote. Now, Vasco Nunez went to the same spot just a few days later. Uh, according to Peter Martyr, Balboa, quote, in complete armor, lifted his sword in one hand and in the other a banner on which was painted an image of the Virgin Mary with the arms of Castile at her feet. He raised it and began to march into the midst of the waves, which reached above his knees, saying in a loud voice, Long live the high and mighty sovereigns of Castile. In their names do I take possession of these seas and regions. And if any other prince, whether Christian or infidel, pretends any right to them, I am ready and resolved to oppose him and to assert the just claims of my sovereigns. 
The band of conquistadors with him replied with acclamations and expressed themselves determined to defend, even to the death, their acquisition against all the potentates of the world. Unquote. The Spaniards spent the day tasting the water of the sea. They cut down and barked trees to engrave crosses on others, and eventually they felt satisfied that they had made themselves masters of the sea by the act of possession. At that point, a notary named Andres de Valderes Baño signed a document which confirmed everything in writing. And presto, just like that, the Spanish believed themselves to own the Pacific Ocean. Well, after that, Balboa retraced his path back to Chiape, and from there he continued, quote, commencing an intercourse with the caciques who governed the various Chibcham provinces, unquote. The next one was called Cuquera. He ruled lands near Chiape, and by the way, the Spanish have a habit of naming provinces after the cacique who governs them at the time of first contact, and that makes things really confusing. Uh, anyway, Cuquera initially resisted the Spanish, but he was injured in the initial encounter and fled. Balboa's strategy, show of force, and an offer of friendship was repeated, and Cuquera came back down with a small amount of gold and pearls. The Spanish, in fact, noticed he had quite a knot of pearls. And so they naturally asked, where did you get those pearls? Cocaire told them he got them from islands off the Pacific coast. Ooh, Vasco Nunez resolved on discovering, quote-unquote, these islands immediately, and began to prepare canoes for the voyage. The Indians, though, who understood the nature of the Pacific Ocean, advised him that the rainy system season was a terrible time, that he should wait for a more benign season. It was the end of October. And so the Chibcham told Balboa in this part of the world, at this time of the year, quote, Nature always wore a fierce and alarming aspect with deafening winds and tempestuous seas, unquote. This would make things very difficult for Vasco Nunez to navigate through the rocky islets and reefs between the coasts and the islands off the coast, but Balboa insisted. He went out with 60 Castilians, as ardent as himself to get the pearls, and launched themselves into the sea in some canoes, along with a couple of Chibchan guides who would not desert their tiba. Scarcely had they entered the gulf, quote, than the wrathful element made them repent the rash impulse which they had obeyed, unquote. The seas were so rough that they were forced to assemble on a tiny, tiny islet where they tied their canoes together. The tide rose and covered the isle, and they spent the night in waist-deep water. By morning, the boats were completely ruined. Some were dashed to pieces, some torn open, and some were full of sand and water. All were entirely destitute of their provisions. Now, the Spanish caulked the broken canoes as well as they could, with grass and tree bark, and then they returned hungry and naked back to the coastline. So that embarrassment aside, Balboa decided instead that, well, I'll go meet a different cacique who is also nearby. His name is Tumaco. Balboa disengaged with Tumaco with the same show of force and subsequent offer of friendship that you've come to expect. And this persuaded Tumaco to also become a vassal of Balboa, to exchange gifts with the captain, as so many others had done. Again, Balboa received gold and a lot of pearls from Tumaco, and despite having earlier nearly drowned, this reignited Balboa's passion for finding even more pearls. 
pearls. Tumaco sent his people to fish for more pearls a few days later, and a few days later gave Balboa an additional present of 12 marcos of pearls. A marco, by the way, is a 16th century Spanish measure of weight of 8 ounces. Tumaco told Balboa that the wealth of one island in particular was so great, Terareki, as the Chibcham called it, it had pearls that dwarfed the size of the pearls that he had given Balboa. The Spanish renamed Terareki the Rich Island. He continued that further, the whole east, the whole coast to the east was very rich. It extended without limit. And then he began describing Peru, and then he began describing the llama. The Spanish, of course, had never seen a llama before, and so they had no idea what he was talking about. They presumed it was some sort of deer or cow. Balboa, of course, did not go to Peru. If you'll recall, he was told he'd need a thousand Spaniards to conquer, so instead he headed back to Santa Maria, on a different path than when he'd started from for the sake of further quote-unquote discovery, of course. He left his six men, sick men in the various vassalized states in order to further cement alliances and so that they could uh, get more healthy, hopefully, while Balboa and his healthy men, along with, quote, many baggage Indians, unquote, set out for the province of a cacique named Techoan. Techoan was eager to make an alliance with Balboa in order to fight his enemy, a powerful lord named Pankra, who, according to Techoan, at the very least, was an insufferable tyrant to the whole neighborhood. He gave the captain a great quantity of gold and pearls, provisions in abundance, Indians necessary for burdens, and even his son to govern those people and to act as guides. Pankra and his people fled to the mountains when the Entrada arrived into their own lands. Now, inside of Pankra's town, though, the Spaniards did discover 3,000 pieces worth of gold, and this quote-unquote discovery so inflamed the avarice of the conquistadors, they, quote, resorted to every means of entrapping Pankra as necessary to in order to obtain the rest of his wealth. Overcome at last by threats and terror, Pankra put himself, in evil hour, into the hands of his enemies, who lost not a moment in completing his ruin." Unquote. Pankra was old and deformed, and gave Balboa a tribute of gold, and, and I say that because Balboa does not treat Pankra very well, and I'm not 100% sure why. Balboa inquired from whence he got his gold, and when Pankra told him that his ancestors left it to him, and that he had no more, Balboa didn't believe him. He put the cacique to the torture. Pankra maintained his silence, and then was thrown to the bloodhounds. In addition, Peter Martyr tells us that three of Pankra's subchiefs were then fed to the dogs or burned alive. Still, the story did not change about a lack of gold mines. More cruelties followed. Balboa, quote, put many Indians to the torture and set dogs on others, as well as allowed his men to take as many wives and daughters as they wished, unquote. Now, Balboa is not a nice guy, but his treatment of Pangra is harsher than the treatment he gave to other Chibcham states. Now, I think it's likely that 
Balboa, in all honesty, is this probably bef- maybe before reaching Ponca is when he learns uh, that the governor's on his way or something. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. Um, at any rate, perhaps he is increasingly frustrated and anxious about uh, Ferdinand's rebuke. Um, stress can make people do terrible things. But maybe, though, I have also considered that Ponker's reputation as a bad actor, um, it's possible that that was just accurate. And his death and torture of these people is the result of there being so many native participants in in Balboa's Entrada. Um, Just hear me out if this doesn't make a lot of sense to you, but... uh, so, for example, when Pankra told Balboa he had no more gold, he did so through an interpreter, and of course. What if, say, Tumako's son, who was along for the conquest with his army, responded by telling Balboa he's lying? Maybe both of those things are true. There's no way we'll ever really know, probably. These are the sorts of mysteries, though, that keep me up at night, at any rate. The sick Spaniards who remained behind rejoined Balboa at Pankras town as they continued on. Balboa crossed the mountains back to the Atlantic side of the Isthmus on December 1st through the lands of a cacique who had taken his supplies and fled. And this meant that for the first time in the four-and-a-half-month expedition, uh, Balboa and his men experienced hunger. Some of the Indian porters, in fact, died on, on this road during the expedition. Uh, and luckily for the folks who did not die, a week later they received relief because they reached the lands of Pocarosa, who sent a messenger to express his lord's desire to make an allegiance with Balboa. Uh, Pocarosa presented Balboa with gold in the amount of 1,400 pesos uh, in order to show his affection. And the Spaniards, by the way, had gotten quite a reputation for this point, for being able to serve as great mercenaries who could enable a chip-chab cacique to take out his enemies. Now, and if you're thinking, did Pocarosa give help the starving war party and give them gold out of the kindness of his heart? Well, no, of course he didn't do that. He helped Balboa because he wished Balboa to attack another nearby cacique named Tubanama, a powerful chief feared through the region. In fact, another of Balboa's co- Balboa's allies, Comogre, was also an enemy of Tubanama. Now, Balboa and the Spaniards, though, were low on supplies. They were tired, some were wounded from all the various battles up to this point, and instead of a frontal assault, then, Balboa selected 80 healthy men to go into the foothills to make a surprise raid on the Bohio of Tubanama. It happened before dawn, the favored Spanish tactic. The surprise managed to capture the chief while he was resting at home with his 80 wives and concubines, the poor guy, Balboa threatened to throw Tubanama to the dogs. Then he threatened to to- tie him hand and foot and throw him in the river. And Tubanama began to weep. He begged for his life. He promised he could give Balboa all the gold he wished. Balboa decided, well, okay, I guess I don't need to feed Tubanama to the dogs after all, and he held him for ransom instead. Tubanama's subjects began bringing in their pieces of gold, and in total, after having ransacked the Bohio and having received what his subjects brought in addition, Balboa and his conquistadors quote-unquote discovered 90 pounds worth of golden treasures. 
Tubanamba explained that these were things that were inherited by his people's ancestors. Of course, the Spanish melted those treasures down and moved on. They moved on to Camogre, the uh, already vassalized state, and arrived at the Chibcham province, uh, which was back on the Atlantic coast where the brigantine was left in the first place, uh, arriving on New Year's Day of 1514. Camogre by this point, though, was dead. His son, now in charge, the one who had earlier yelled at the Spaniards for their lust of gold, and shortly after that, Balboa and his men returned to Darien. Once again, Balboa achieved great success for Spain. As far as Spain was concerned, in fact, Balboa had spoken the requimiento, and thus spoken the magic words which gave the king and queen possession of Central America and the Pacific Ocean. He also brought back news of another promising source of pearls, not to mention the large cache of booty and gifts he brought back in the form of gold, pearls, slaves, and cotton. Further, although he'd taken his sweet, sweet time during his expedition, making allies, going to war, resting after wars, Balboa proved to Europe that the American isthmus could be crossed by a large party in just a few days, and most of his men were alive when they returned. Now, Sauer believes Balboa's power corrupted him. Likely true. And that was the reason for his treatment of Pankra. On his trip in the Pacific, it showed that the power was corrupting him. In particular, uh, when he tortures Pankra and his people and to death when they won't reveal the location of non-existent gold mines, uh, I, I mean, that's something that other uh, chiefs had done, and he had not done that. And Balboa was, I guess, a, in, in that way, a better man than most of the conquistadors, but like all of the Spanish captains of his time, he was a seeker of gold, and if the price for gold was blood, then so be it. Now, what made Balboa unique was his vision. Most conquistadors would have pillaged more, pillaged faster, and likely died in some harebrained attack. Balboa realized, more so than most of his peers, that if Spain wanted long-term success in the Americas, if it wanted a place, uh, wealthy colonies that would last, it was important to find gold mines, because stealing the golden treasures from a village is essentially a one-time thing. You can't steal from someone forever, eventually they literally run out of items to steal. But Balboa's effectiveness as captain was only part of the reason. He had ever been elected to governor by Ferdinand in the first place. Back in Spain, as I've, I've talked about a little bit, there's a legal battle going on as to what exactly belongs to the Columbus family, who were basically claiming that all of the Americas belonged to them. By appointing Balboa as governor, Ferdinand separated Tierra Firm from the administration of Hispaniola, and this was governed by Diego Columbus. So in 1513, when Ferdinand appointed Pedrarius de Villa to replace Balboa, he also changed the name of the colony from Tierra Firm to Castilla del Oro, the Golden Castile, again in English. And this serves to further separate Spain's possessions from the claims of the Columbus descendants. Now, Veragua excluded, uh, excuse me, Ferdinand excluded Veragua from this new colonial designation. 
Columbus had come up with the name Veraguate in the first place. And so the Columbus family was focused on attacking Veragua specifically as their point of entry into the Americas. And so the creation of Castilla del Oro from the larger Tierra firm was basically a way for Ferdinand to ensure that he remained in control of the vast majority of the Americas, even if he lost at court and the family and the Columbus family won uh, rights to Veragua. But now, with that said, the official dimensions of Castilla de Oro were quickly increased to include the territory on the Pacific coast when Balboa's reports of the Mar del Sur returned to Spain. Now, unfortunately for Balboa, his reports arrived long after they could do anything to help him save his governorship. Now, Pedrarius de Villa, the new governor and captain of Castilla de Oro, arrived in July 1514, excuse me, Pedrarius de Villa, I think. Uh, just a f It was just a few months after Balboa returned from the Pacific. His reign was that of a bloodthirsty maniac bent on genocide and destruction. And that's just not me talking. Pedrarius was held in Pedrarius was not held in very high regard by his contemporaries. Um, they did not excuse the, quote, disastrous management of his colony, and he rivals Nicolas de Ovando, the governor of Hispaniola, um, as one of the worst people in history. Um, among Pedrarius critics are a Franciscan friar named Juan de Quevedo, who came to Castilla del Oro with Pedrarius to be the Bishop of Darien and began lodging complaints about the governor shortly thereafter. He was friendly uh, with Pedrarius and with Balboa, mind you. He even got uh, Balboa and uh, Pedrarius' and, excuse me, Pedrarius's daughter-in-law to uh, get married to try and end the feud between the two. But anyway, uh, another of the guys uh, who are arguing uh, and complaining about Pedrarius is Gonzalez Fernandez Oviedo one of our chief chroniclers, of course, uh, on the conquest, and who was likewise on the fleet of Pedrarius. Uh, Oviedo returned to Spain ten months after arriving, specifically to lodge complaints about Pedrarius's rule. He later returned to Darien in 1520, where he stayed for five years, collecting materials to write his history, by the way. Now, with that said, no serious inquiry was made into Pedrarius's rule, or misrule, until after Ferdinand's death. So just like Ovando's reign of genocide in Hispaniola, Spanish justice was going to be far too late in arriving to really do much good. And that makes Ferdinand look pretty bad, uh, I think. Because, yeah, he's overseeing genocidal regimes, because all he cares about is getting golden pearls, frankly. In both places, Hispaniola and Castillo de Oro, Ferdinand's governor, though, ends up destroying the economies with these genocidal tactics. Destroying the economies of the gold-producing regions isn't what Ferdinand intended, I can't imagine. And we're going to get a little bit more into that next episode a bit. But just for now, I'll leave it with this. I'm not 100% sure that Ferdinand wasn't a total idiot. Anyway, that is not a total idiot. He wouldn't have been king, but uh, pretty close. That aside, let's get into what happens after Pedrarius arrives in the New World. Because in this case, I think the best way to start 
with what happens when he does arrives is with a quote from someone who arrives on Tierra Firm after Ferdinand dies. And this is a translation of part of the report of the colony, which was made by the, the licensate Zoiseau, a government official sent to make a report on Spanish America after Ferdinand's death as part of the Cisneros reforms. Uh, we talked about that a little bit last episode. Now, the report is damning. It is vivid. And it speaks to the affairs of Castilla del Oro from 1514 to 1517. Uh, before I read it, I just want to add a few details that the text doesn't entirely make clear. First, Zoiseau leaves a, the number of Spaniards who arrive on the fleet unclear. Um, it was a lot, at least 1,500, perhaps upwards of 2,000 men. That was double that of which the 1,000 which Ferdinand had ordered. Pedrarius was given in charge of a massive fleet of conquistadors, um, a force the size of that wielded by Columbus. Uh, anyway, second, the other point is that the document speaks of men who had been to Italy, and Zoiseau isn't entirely clear what that means. A l large part of the fleet, maybe even the majority of the men on it, were soldiers who were had returned to Spain recently after a war from Italy. Ferdinand specifically cautioned Pedrarius in his instructions, quote, concerning the quality of the men who have gone with you, Soldiers who have been in Italy, as you know, they are accustomed to very great vices, so that you will have some difficulties, unquote. So that's who is coming over, just so you know. And it also kind of shows uh, a little bit why Las Casas calls Oviedo a propagandist. Um, as th This kind of thing, this quote that I'm about to read is going to make it clear. Oviedo will call out commanders in his history. But he kind of refuses to acknowledge what Las Casas does, that some, maybe maybe most of the blame wasn't just the fault of bad commanders, but with bad men from Spain. Okay, so with that said, here is the licensate Zoiseau's report on the Castillo del Oro. The Armada was prepared, and Pedrarius was with it in Sevilla, about to embark. All the party lined up to parade through Sevilla. All or most of the men had been in Italy. A very impressive lot, very well dressed, none owning less than a jacket of silk, and many one of brocade. It is said in Sevilla that never was such an assembly of fair and goodly men seen in Spain. The entire armada having embarked, Pedrarius sailed to carry out the plans on which the royal treasury had spent close to 40,000 ducats. As the officials and the Casa de Contracion told me in Sevilla, the king paid all the costs of the armada up to the time of its arrival on Tierra Firm, whereupon each individual was to live at his own cost. When the voyage ended and the ships had safely come into port, Provision and maintenance by the crown came to an end. Therefore, the men were obliged to eat what the land afforded, which were roots and a grain called mezo. Darien, where they made port, being a very wet country of swamps and overflowed lands from which dense and sickly vapors arise, the men began to die, and there died two-thirds of them, though dressed in silks and brocade. Those who survived, ill as they were, and thinking themselves lost, joined in raids on Indians, robbing and killing, done in this manner, 
the council, in order to justify such war, instructed Pedrarius that before major hurt was done to the Indians, they should be required to become Christians and subjects of the Catholic kings along with other compliances warning the failing to do so they would be made slaves and subject to killing and plundering thus as i have said the armada arrived an entrada of the survivors was ordered to go into the interior a certain arroya being captain when the indians saw these and where they were headed they thought them to be led by vasco nunez whom they called tiba which meant lord of the christians certain caciques and their men came up bringing much roast venison on barbacoas which are kind of wooden containers by which they carry cooked and roast meat many cooked turkeys fish in plenty diverse stews and other variety of native foods together with their very white bread which are cakes of maize and wine also made of white maize and enough to feed to repletion six hundred men or more when the said Captain Arroyo got to where a certain cacique was waiting with his provisions, the cacique asked, as they were sitting down to seat, who the Tiba of the Christians was. Captain Arroyo, thus being pointed out to him, the cacique replied, knowing Vasco Nunez, that this was a different man. Having finished his meal, Arroyo at once seized the cacique, his brothers and others who seemed to be principals and who had been his hosts. He asked them for gold, otherwise they would be consigned to the flames or thrown to the dogs. The cacique, terrified, sent an Indian to bring some gold, which Arroya said amounted to little, and he wanted more. Otherwise he would carry out his threat to burn them and give them to the dogs. The cacique, thus pressed, sent his Indians to get all the gold they had, which brought but the captain said it was still but a small quantity. More must be given. At last, the cacique said there was no more. He would give it if he had, but he had given all of his own and of his Indians, and he begged the captain to be satisfied. Arroya ordered a fire set, burned the cacique, and threw the others to the dogs, an act of greatest cruelty. This news spread quickly among the caciques round about. Knowing the cruelty done during this friendly reception when food and supplies were bought, brought to Captain Arroya, none of the other caciques or Indians felt safe with any Christian. They scattered through the country, abandoning their houses and bohios. To the natives thus in flight, the requimiento was displayed from a distance, demanding their obedience to a Catholic king. Arroya had a scribe before the requimiento was read and certified that the Indians had thus been notified. Thereupon the captain pronounced them slaves with all their goods forfeit, since it was evident that they refused obedience. The requimiento was read in Spanish, of which neither cacique nor Indians understood a word. It was read at such a distance that they had all had excuse me. However, if it was read it was read at such a distance that had they understood the language they could not have heard what was being said if they heard the voice they would have thought it further than requests for gold failing to give which they would be burned as they were other as they were the other cacique and his brothers in such manner the spaniards attacked the bohios at night robbed them turned dogs on the natives consigned them to flames and took them away in chains as slaves Thus, the land has been altered in a manner, 
such that no Christian dares go a league from town except in a company of men. Continuing the entradas like the one I have described, all the land has become so aroused and alarmed by the grave indignities, killings, brutal robbery, and the burning of the settlements that all the Castilians maintain themselves only like birds of prey. The land is lost and desolate." Unquote. That's the report by the licensate Zao. Whatever goodwill existed between any of the Christian, or the, excuse me, any of the Chibchan nations and the Spanish under Balboa was annihilated within months of the arrival of Pedrarius and the Italian veterans. By 1515, Terra Firme was a complete war zone. The economy, once the best economy in uh, in in uh, in, this, in Spanish Maine, was ruined. Our friend Bartolome de las Casas summarized Pedrarius's reign on the mainland thusly, quote, In the year 1514 there went to the mainland a wretch of a governor, a most cruel tyrant, ruthless and imprudent, lacking any piety. Other tyrants had gone to the mainland before him, and had robbed and committed many atrocities along the coast, but now this governor surpassed all others in the cruelties he committed. His nefarious deeds went far beyond past abominations. He ruthlessly exterminated people and turned the land into an inferno, unquote. Particularly troubling to Las Casas was Pedrarius's unwillingness to even properly read the requimiento to the Indians. Uh, Zuzao mentioned this as well. Quote, when he sent thieves, un thieves under his command to attack and rob a settlement of Indians, where he had heard there was a store of gold, he told them to go at night, and when the inhabitants were securely in their houses. Further, he ordered them to read the requimiento half a league from the villages. Thus, Pedrarius's raids occurred, quote, when these innocents are asleep. Unquote. Las Casas accused Pedrarius of burning towns, selling slaves, and further of robbing the king while he was doing it. Quote, I believe I underestimate when I say they robbed more gold in that kingdom than was worth one million castellanos, of which amount they sent to the king only three thousand castellanos. During these actions they killed some eight hundred thousand souls, unquote. And with that said, most of the damage was not caused by only but a fraction of the 2,000 men who arrived. Within a short period of time, the newcomers fell ill. Carl Orban Sauer spends a bit of time in his book, The Early Spanish Maine, describing what the sickness was. One of the conquistadors on Davila's fleet described it. Quote, the men began to sicken to such an extent that they were unable to care for each other, and thus in one month, 700 died of hunger and Madura, unquote. Madura is a Spanish word which translates directly into sleepy. This was a sickness known to Spain, apparently. There, there are 16th century sources that occasionally mention a sickness, quote, called Madura by the common people, unquote. But no real exact description exists of what exactly Madura did to people. Um, so it's a kind of a mystery as to what it was. Uh, Carl Ortwood Sauer believes that although the sickness only affected the the, the the sickness only affected the new arrivals on Davila's fleet, but regardless, Carl Ortwood Sauer claimed that um, the source 
of the disease was Spanish. Um, Balboa and the Spanish already there, and the Chibchan Indians apparently weren't affected by this. It was uh, perhaps seems to have been brought by the passengers and did not become endemic. Anyway, I, it's hard to say. The, the ships had been overcrowded for a month. Before leaving, all of the passengers um, had been on the same harbor in the southern coast of Spain. Um, Medora is clearly a seeping sickness of undescribed etiology, as uh, um, a scientist would say. I'm not sure we can really say for certain whether or not the disease came from Spain or if it was endemic to the Americas. This isn't the first instance of disease affecting newcomers. Disease does work both ways in the 16th century. Columbus described a sickness that affected the colonists at Isabella in 1493. When Ovando and his party landed at Santo Domingo in 1502, sickness broke out there. Um, but the mortality in either of those cases wasn't nearly as high as this Medora. Uh, at any rate, whatever the Medora was, it ultimately killed two-thirds of the new arrivals. Compounding the problems with the Medora was the fact that the provisions sent from Spain were almost immediately exhausted. This caused serious problems. Especially, I, these Spaniards had come thinking they were going to come to Tierra Firm and they were going to literally be practically pulling nets out of the gold, uh, of nets full of gold out of rivers. Following the arrival of the 1,500 to 2,000 men to Darien was a famine. The famine was directly the result of poor planning. The ships were specifically ordered not to supply the men after they had landed. The citizens at Santa Maria, who were already there, had worked out deals with the local caciques who supplied them with food. This didn't include the spontaneous tribute of food for 2,000 extra people just one random day in the summer. So those who weren't sick and dying of Medora took to foraging and pillaging. They destroyed native plantings and used up native supplies by, and then early, and this made the famine worse over time, to be honest. In early fall of 1514, things got really bad. A plague of locusts appeared and covered the sky. Practically nothing remained afterwards for anyone, Chibchan or Spaniard alike. Jose Manuel Quintana, author of The Life of Balboa, uh, to quote him, quote, calamity increased upon them, and those who had left in Castile their property and their luxuries in pursuit of Indian opulence wandered about the streets, begging a miserable alms and finding none to relieve them. They sold their rich ornaments and vestments for pieces of maize bread or a Castile biscuit. Some became woodcutters. Wood they sold the result of their labors for a bit of bread to sustain existence. Others fed like the beasts on the grass of the fields. One knight rushed into the street one day, crying aloud he was dying of hunger. In the sight of the whole population, there fell and rendered up his soul. So many perished daily, it was impossible to preserve any order or ceremony in the funerals. And carts were used for carrying away the dead, unquote. At any rate, things occurred despite Medora and famine. Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? On his arrival, Pedrarius sent a messenger to Balboa to let him know that the new boss was in town. He also immediately started questioning um, people in Santa Maria about Balboa. Um, 
But they, uh, and and what, anyway, that is how Balboa learned that Pedrarius was preparing a prosecution of him, and that is how he escaped imprisonment when Pedrarius promptly arrived, when Pedrarius arrived. Um, when Balboa didn't come into town, essentially Pedrarius had Balboa's goods confiscated, and this is why he had to send a messenger to Balboa. Um, as the investigated proceeded, um, though, it became clear to Pedrarius that the town was full of Balboa's allies. They all came to his defense. Pedrarius could not come to any conclusion other than Balboa was a good man who was doing a good job as the servant of the crown. Uh, he eventually released Vasco Nunez's property, and though his governorship was over, Babo was free. Pedrarius also sent out various entradas across the Central American Isthmus. Oviedo recorded that there was, quote, not time or paper enough to tell all of the captains that all that the captains did to ruin the Indians and rob and destroy the land. However, since I said earlier in this government of Castilla de Oro, there had been two million Indians, or that there were innumerable, it is necessary to say how so numerous a people came to their end in so short a time, unquote. The first major raid was against the friendly native states of Camogre, Pogarosa, and Tubanama, all of which supported the Christians and Balboa. Pedrarius had questioned Balboa about the outlying lands and caciques, and now that he knew about where everybody lived, he didn't really have any intention of differentiating between who the good and the bad Indians were. Within his, a month of his arrival, he sent his lieutenant Oroya and 400 men to Camogre. This is when the first outrage took place, as described in the License Zoazo's report. Oviedo called an Arroyo's Entrada, quote, Monteria Infernal de Indios, unquote, a hellish hunting of Indians in English, and forgive, as always, my mispronunciations, if any occur in that phrase. From Camogre, Arroyo went next into Pocarosa and to Banama. He seized gold and slaves from both, and he turned the whole region into a war zone. Pedrarius turned the most faithful native states and chose those as his first victims. If it was a purposeful strategy to implement fear and hatred in everyone in Castillo de Oro, native and Spaniard alike, then he succeeded brilliantly. Comorosa, uh, excuse me, Comogre and Pogorosa allied before Captain Arroyo's force even got back to Santa Maria after conquering Tubanama, the, raiding the third uh, of the three. And the well-working economy of Balboa's Darien was replaced by total war in Pedrarius' Castillo de Oro. Pedrarius sent another party south from Darien under the command of Luis Carrillo with Francisco Pizarro in second in command. Oviedo reported that they went to a Chibchab province ruled by a cacique named Ebrain. Carrillo and Pizarro were charged with forming a town and planting corn. But instead, they basically built a temporary camp and soon came back after that, quote, with many slaves and good gold, practicing cruelties that Pizarro had learned by heart, unquote. Pedrarius sent more and more entradas across the isthmus, they largely followed the routes that Balboa had already traveled. 
Balboa, meanwhile, mainly kept away from Tregerius, and he started writing letters back to Ferdinand to complain. Now, those letters are lost to us today, but they must have been pretty persuasive. Because on September 23rd, the king changed direction. He named Balboa Adelantado of the south of the shores of the South Sea and, gov and governor of the provinces of Panama and Coiba, basically cutting parts of Castillo del Oro away from Pedrarius. Now, Pedrarius, for his part, was pretty furious when he heard about that. Further, he was charged with providing Balboa with 100 men. So he wrote his own letters to Ferdinand, arguing instead there was no land of Coiba. Coiba was an Indian land that meant far away. He wrote that there was no Panama. That was just a word that meant fishermen. And he wrote that he absolutely could not spare even a single man to Balboa, never mind 100. Pedrarius then sent Captain Roya with a party to make his own settlement on the Pacific coast. Ferdinand's instructions be damned. Arroya built a fort and was then relieved by Tello de Guzman, who um, Pedrarius sent to relieve him. Oviedo considers Tello de Guzman one of the worst men in the, Mer in the Americas, and Pedrarius uh, charged him with taking possession of Panama. Like Pizarro, Guzman will later participate in the conquest of Peru, so we'll get more of him. Pedrarius also sent another expedition to Coiba, the other place that uh, he was supposed to give uh, to, um, to Baboa. Now today, Coiba is basically the western Coiba and is basically the western Pacific coastal region of Panama, and um, he put that uh, uh, expedition under the command of Gonzalo de Badajoz, who was a survivor from Nisuez's adventure. Badajoz attacked uh, Cacique after Cacique in Coiba. He obtained a vast sum of gold and treasure. Um, and then, ultimately, the caciques of the Pacific side of Panama allied themselves together and made a counterattack, routed Badajoz and his men, defeated the Spaniards on a river, and forced the conquistadors to retreat. Uh, they lost all of the vast sums of gold and slaves that they had obtained in the process. So Coiba remained unpacified, as the Spanish would say. But Pedrarius was still largely successful in countering Balboa's appointment um, to govern Panama and Coiba. And on, on paper, it was all good and fine, but Pedrarius's actions were left unchallenged by Ferdinand and Fonseca. So, despite whatever Ferdinand wanted, Pedrarius took de facto possession of these places, uh, despite Balboa's return to the good graces of the king. Now, after the initial defeat at Coiba, Pedrarius sent expeditions out into the Gulf of San Miguel off the Pacific coast, um, one under Francisco Becerra, who reconnoitered a great deal of the region and started to really expand upon Spanish knowledge of the Pacific side of the, of the Isthmus, and the second under the command of one Gaspar de Morales to follow up on Becerra's claims that there were a lot of great islands out there full of pearls on the South Sea. Morales found these Pearl Islands, and he found the cacique of the main island, Tereque, who and he found that he was willing to submit to Spain's authority. Ter the cacique of Tereque gave Morales a large quantity of pearls, and promised thenceforth to provide a large annual tribute of pearls henceforth. 
Now, basically, all the men expeditions I've mentioned so far that Pedrers sent all sent out basically went west from Santa Maria and Darien. He also sent expeditions to the east and south to uh, into Colombia and South America. These were far less successful, if you'll recall. Uh, Santa Maria and Darien province is right there at the base of the Gulf of, uh, of Uraba. East of the Gulf of Uraba were natives who used poison on their arrows. Anyway, the first expedition Pedrarius sent to the east was under the command of Martin Fernandez de Enciso, the earlier partner of Ojeda and Nisueza, and who had returned to Santa Maria with Pedrarius. Enciso's objective was to find and subjugate the land of Sinu, which was one of the most populous and wealthiest Chibchan states. The Spanish knew almost nothing about it, um, otherwise, because of the aforementioned poison arrows, uh, and Ciso sailed to the to sailed to the lands of uh, the cacique named Sino, and basically Sino was somewhere in between Darien and Cartagena, not exactly sure where, but he uh, and Ciso landed in one of the villages under the command of Sino, and. Uh, his armada promptly scattered the 20 canoes which came out into the bay to oppose him, and then he took the town and the local cacique. Now, most of the economy on the coast there was focused on the salt trade. More importantly to the Spaniards, though, was that Sino's people smelted gold, which they caught in tents that they placed in mountain streams nearby. Um, years before, Alonso de Ojeda had sent out from his San Sebastian to look for those same mines before being chased off with poison arrows. And Siso knew about that failure, and he decided to make a different approach. He would attack from the north instead of the west. But Enciso failed as well. Uh, his party suffered losses from poison arrow attacks, and he fearfully returned to Darien, uh, and where he was, had, was back in November of 1514. The next spring, in 1515, uh, another expedition was sent out, quote, toward the part where Ojeda had settled, quote, unquote, captained by Francisco de Vallejo. This expedition promptly began attacking Indian settlements and secured about 3,000 pesos of fine gold, but in the continuing, continued to face, excuse me, however, they continued to face harassment by angry Indians with poison arrows and turned back after that. They reached Rio Leon and made rafts to escape, making their way back to Darien. But a flood tore the rafts to pieces. A good many of the Spaniards drowned, who had not been killed by the poison. The expedition of Francisco de Vallejo was an absolute failure. Pedrarius kept trying, though. And later that spring, he sent an even larger expedition to Sinu, under the command of Francisco Becerra, fresh off his successful campaigns on the Pacific coast of Panama. Becerra brought 180 men and three cannons to Sinu, where Indians smelted gold they found in the mountain streams with nets. Balboa wrote in a letter that Becerra's entrada was akin to, quote, sending cattle to the slaughterhouse, unquote. Oviedo recorded that Becerra got what he deserved for his earlier cruelties in the East. Quote, he and many others who were lost with him paid their debts, unquote. When None of Becerra or his 180 men or three artillery pieces returned. Um, it was assumed they all died. In fact, Pedreus only learned of their fate later, when an Indian messenger boy arrived at Santa Maria. Well, there were no more Spanish conquistadors going to be going in the direction of Sinu again any time after that. Uh, they don't return, 
that is the Spanish to that part of Colombia until 1534. We'll get that to that in, in a future episode. Uh, Pedrarius sent Balboa on an expedition uh, as well. Luckily for Balboa, his mission was to search for Dabaiba again, not, say, Sainu. Now, you might wonder how in the hell does it help Pedrarius to give Balboa a command. But from Pedrarius's perspective, how better to keep Balboa from his governorship in the west than by sending him to the east, where he might be poisoned to death by arrows. And even if he was successful, he had no legal right to command. The account of Balboa's entrada to Dabaiba gives us an idea of the guerrilla warfare tactics that Chibchan warriors used against the Spanish. Some natives stole the canoes that Balboa and his 200 men were using to travel down a river. This slowed them down quite a bit on their way to Dabaiba. On a different small river, they were ambushed, and some of the men were killed. By the time that Balboa and his men got to Dabaiba, the cacique and his men, in fact, had fled. The town was empty. Balboa managed to hunt down and capture some Indians from Dubaiba after that, who told Balboa that the streams where they collected gold were about ten days away. And this was where all the caciques collected their gold. But before Balboa could explore the mountains for gold-yielding streams, he had to contend with the fact that uh, insects got into the expedition's food. I don't know if it was uh, more of the, of the locusts or ants or whatever. Uh, now, this might sound a little implausible, but perhaps you should examine some of the insects that live in the tropics and subtropics. It's very plausible. But it is also plausible that maybe um, he was just pissed off about being ordered around by Pedrarius, and uh, this was an excuse. Uh, just, But who knows? At, at, at any rate, after about 30 days, um, what with the locusts having destroyed all the food in the country— um, Balboa returned, explaining it was quite impossible for him and his men not to have starved to death if they hadn't. Now, Pedrarius was disappointed, and despite the fact that Indians were questions about the fabled gold mines of Dabaiba, kept placing the fabled gold mines farther and farther away, Pedrarius wasn't done trying to find them. He commissioned a wealthy conquistador and businessman named Juan de Tivira to find Dabaiba after Balboa returned. Tavira found a passage uh, on the river um, that Balboa had taken, blocked by war canoes, and in an ensuing battle, Tavira was promptly drowned, along with most of the other men in his party. The survivors, led by Francisco Pizarro, who just keeps popping up again and again, if you haven't noticed, managed to escape and make their way back to Darien. Pedrarius oversaw a butchery thus not only of the Chibcham, but of his own Spanish men. He kept sending them east and south and to South America again and again, overseeing failure after failure. So in some ways, he almost kind of reminds me of these later World War I generals in Europe who, you know, are sending their troops out to die over and over. I mean, native armies are killing hundreds of poison arrows, little gold is being brought back, no gold mines are being found, and just he just keeps keeps repeating the process again and again. Now, with that said, the comparison only takes us so far, because Petrarius eventually does turn his attention away from the east and towards the Pacific. Um, and that's where the passage to the South Sea offered more easily obtained wealth, in that nobody was using poison arrows there. 
Pedrarius himself led an expedition to the Pacific in November of 1515. He took 100 and, I mean, excuse me, 250 men and a dozen horses west to the Chipcham province of Careta. He renamed it Acla and ordered a town and fort built. Mind you, Pedrarius was not much of a conquistador, and his account of the conquest of Careta wasn't really much of a conquest. But by personally going, he was performing yet another action that acted to kind of block Balboa's appointment as, as governor of a new colony of the West. Um, the reason Pedrarius went to Coretta was that the uh, Chibcham province of Coretta was in revolt, ever since Pedrarius' captains first started roaming around murdering everyone they could find, of course. Uh, Lope de Alano was a conquistador who, since that time, had held the province in Encomienda. And, and just so you know, Encomienda is pretty rare on Tierra Firm compared to the Caribbean. Uh, Alano, though, had pissed off the people of Careta, and they were in revolt. So in comes Pedrarius to the rescue to save one of his encomenderos, and faced with the prospect of Spanish cavalry hunting down his people, the cacique Careta was persuaded to come to a feast of reconciliation and renewal of allegiance. So things seemed like they were starting to work out for Pedrarius here. He began the construction of a new villa and on a, like named Acla. That ought to show Balboa, who really owns Panama, he undoubtedly thought to himself. Uh, and then he experienced, quote, a return of fevers and kidney trouble, unquote, and he left nearly immediately after restoring the peace back to Santa Maria. Alano proceeded to return to being a murderous dickhead. He angered the natives again and was killed while he was building the town of Akla. And if you think that is the end of Akla, it is not. Uh, I, I don't under, know how to explain exactly what happened. But by 1517, Akla was thriving. You see, Balboa had come to town. He made peace. He took charge of building the second Spanish Villa of Tierra Firm. He made friends with the once very angry natives. And later, a party of conquistadors arrives, uh, thinking they're going to take revenge on, on uh, the uh, death of, uh, of, of what's his face, uh, Lope de Olano. Um, they think. Uh, they're going to get revenge. They're stunned. They find, uh, expect nothing but ruins, but instead they find Balboa in charge of the uh, Villa. Um, quote, settled in the same manner as that of Darien, uh, and food as good as in Sevilla. Now, unquote. More on Akla in a moment, but first let's caught up on that newly arrived expedition. That expedition, which landed in Akla, was one of the most infamous, which was led out by, uh, by Pedrarius. This one was led by Gaspar de Espinosa, one of Pedrarius's chief officials, essentially third in command after Pedrarius and Arroya. Espinosa's entrada was sent out to punish Camogre, Pocarosa, and Tubanaba, which the native states who had earlier become willing allies of Balboa. Now, these states had been at war with the Spanish ever since Pedrarius arrived, because he sent Arroyo to attack them. Um, now, the various conquistadors all had their favorite, favorite tactics. Some were especially skilled at commanding cavalry or artillery. Uh, others preferred war dogs. Espinosa was especially skilled at planning night raids, apparently. 
his favorite tactic in the war against Camogre, Pocorosa, and Tupanava. Um, some, he used uh, night raids to capture some caciques. Uh, others fled. He found uh, others who did flee with hunting parties. Um, the whole Entrada, like I said, was revenge. Um, during, after Arroyo's attack, uh, the people of uh, the Chipchats basically had destroyed a Spanish garrison. Uh, Pocarosa was the chief held most responsible. Um, and anyway, the result of this is, again, uh, Pedrarius' cruelty is inflicted most on those Chipchan who were most willing to befriend the Spanish. Little gold was captured. Um, there wasn't even enough food to provide for the needs of Espinosa's Entrada. And that is why he and his Entrada, Espinosa, that is, found themselves headed to the Pacific. Uh, in a desperate search for not deserted villages where they could find food, eventually he did find such people as he continued going west. Uh, Espinosa explored the Azuero Peninsula which is in the nation of Panama. It extends outward into the Pacific Ocean. Espinosa's party went about capturing a cacique named Periquete at night, and then another cacique named Chame. They obtained food, gold, and slaves from these people before moving on. Um, excuse me, those were the caciques they met kind of just outside of the peninsula. Uh, as they got into the peninsula, um, they found a cacique named Chule, who was alerted to the attack and escaped. Um, this process is again repeated when Espinosa reaches the seat of the power for the cacique named Nata, who also escaped. Um, though with that said, the night raids conducted by Espinosa still resulted in him capturing hundreds of slaves and lots of gold and food. Um, Espinosa, Espinosa stuck around the lands of Nata, he ordered Indians there to start growing maize, and he started looking for the lost treasure and expedition of Badajoz, the conquistador who earlier had collected a huge amount of loot and then gotten trounced in um, what is now the Rio Santa Marta, uh, Maria, excuse me, and, and he had abandoned his treasure there. And Espinosa wanted to know what happened to that loot. Nara, Nata wasn't that far away. Um... The Spaniards learned in Nata that the rout of Badajoz had been caused by a cacique named Paris, who had a fearsome reputation. His lands were near a little river known as the Rio Escoria, where Badajoz had lost his loot. Espinosa, needless to say, was very careful in crossing the Rio Escoria into the lands of Paris. Uh, but when he, the Indian guides took him to the seat of Paris's power, Espinosa found that village deserted, and it had been deserted for some time. So Espinosa instead proceeded to meander about the coastline. Um, he was still in, in the peninsula now. He, there was far too many. He realized that the population of the Chimcham in this part uh, was very, very populous. Uh, a lot of the captains he met were great and powerful. He wasn't seeing Paris. And he apparently uh, didn't want to stick around for very long or make war on the caciques there. Uh, he was fearful of... Uh, an alliance forming that would stop him. Now, on the other hand, while this meant that the Chibchan Islands, or excuse me, the Chimcham nations uh, were kind of off limits, I guess, there were a lot of inhabited islands off the coast of Peninsula. These would be a lot easier to divide and conquer, Espinosa thought. 
He attacked one island called Sebago, and after a quick fight made an alliance with the cacique who lived there, Balboa's trick, essentially. That cacique and his fleet of canoes either went along with Espinosa or convinced Espinosa to attack another island, the modern island of Isla Gobernadora. Now, that alliance meant that a lot of golden slaves were obtained on Isla Gobernadora. Now, by this point, it was January of 1517. Espinosa finally headed back towards Santa Maria and went through lands he'd previously traveled through. And as quickly as possible, mind you, because he found no Indians to steal food from along the way, uh, everyone had fled. Espinosa traveled um, all over the nation in Panama, essentially. And everywhere he went, people gathered their belongings and fled before he arrived. He found uh, villages and untended fields all the way back, um, which is why he was so eager to check out Acla in need of food again. Um, and he was quite surprised and delighted to find that Balboa was governing a thriving Acla and that he had food. Back on the Atlantic side of, excuse me, that is uh, a bit farther uh, east, uh, also on the Atlantic side, excuse me, I don't know why I wrote that, Acla is on the Atlantic side. In the village of Santa Maria, I should say, Pedrarius, the governor, was very much worried by 1517 that he would not long be long in government uh, anymore. In 1516, Ferdinand died, and thus uh, Pedrarius's patronage through the Archbishop Fonseca was done. Fonseca was out of power, Cisneros was in control in Spain, and he had sent Herodomite monks and the License Zuazo to clean house in the New World, under what would become known as the Cisneros Reforms. Those reformers had just started wrapping up in the Caribbean in the start of 1517, and were starting to turn their attention to Tierra Firm. Pedrarius was quickly censured by the Cisneros government. Zuazo started collecting incriminating data on the colony of Castilla del Oro through the year, and Oviedo was back in Spain, asking for reform. Las Casas was publicly denouncing the actions of men on Tierra Firm and elsewhere. And, um, regard, needless to say, Pedrarius um, tread carefully. He knew he had to deal politely with Balboa. Ferdinand had awarded Balboa with a governorship of Panama and the title of Adelantado of the South Sea. Pedrarius really wanted to keep Panama for himself, which is why he had ordered Acla built. And that's why he wanted Balboa out of Acla. And to do that, the governor finally gave Balboa one of his two titles, the title of Admiral of the South Sea. He gave him men and instructions to leave Acla at once, to head to the Gulf of San Miguel, and there to construct a fleet which could serve the Pearl Islands. Now, this allowed Pedrarius the freedom to continue to withhold the governorship of Panama from Babella, while appearing nice enough so as to not gather any unnecessary intention from the Cisneros reformers. And besides, Pedrarius instructed Balboa to leave Acla and... Excuse me. Now, I'm starting to repeat myself. This would, uh, and all of this is kind of designed to, in part to keep Balboa from Panama. And while that's probably something of a disappointment to Balboa, because really, while he's in Acla, the only thing that's preventing him from making a proper government of Panama um, isn't 
permission per se from uh, from Petrarius, but he had not yet gotten the troops to do so. But for the first time since he had discovered the Pacific, now he was given the opportunity to have command of men. So while he preferred Panama to the Pacific, things could have been a lot worse. Further, one of Pedrarius's daughters had a little bit of a crush on Balboa. And the bishop, uh, I believe Bishop Quivada of Santa Maria, who was friendly with both Balboa and Pedrarius, uses this information quite possibly learned about in confession or something, who knows. Anyway, her name is Donna Isabel, and the Bishop of Santa Maria convinces Donna Isabel to convince her father into agreeing that maybe she should be married to Balboa. Quote, he gave her the argument, quote, Tell your father, quote, those restless passions and lamentable contentions which divided the Darien into factions and paralyzed the progress of their conquest and discovery would at once be put to an end, unquote. The argument worked. The two were wed, and Balboa and Pedrarius became family. Now, Balboa went out with shipwrights and his men in August 1517, leading uh, an expedition of about 200 Spaniards, which included Hernandez Soto, just so you know. Uh, it also included 30 African slaves and numerous Indians from Careta. The shipwrights, for whatever reason, cut and fashioned the timbers for the ships on the Caribbean coast. Um, and had Indians carry the planks on their backs to the Pacific side. Um, I, I don't know why that is the, the case. Um, regardless, 500 Indians died while serving as porters for this mission, uh, is what Las Casas was informed by the Bishop of Darien. And their deaths and effort was then wasted because the lumber was useless when it was assembled into brigantines. Fresh wood was needed to be cut on the Pacific coast. The operation actually suffered continuous bungling. I, I don't really think that, um... Balboa really, as good as he was on land, I don't know that he was really the right man to, to, to get a fleet. But anyway, um, Carl Orton Sauer found it confusing when he was writing about the events that, that why it was bungled so badly. Um, the only explanation he could come up with, and maybe his is right and mine isn't, that Balboa wasn't the right man for the job, is that the operation was potentially never designed as a sensible plan to occupy the Pacific Shore in the first place but was instead Pedrarius purposefully using a political tactic employed that would keep Balboa employed far away from the ears of any Cisneros reformers who might want to talk to him, since he could be a very damaging witness against Pedrarius. Anyway, Balboa is occupied for a year and a half in the enterprise of building a Pacific fleet. Um, during that time, the Cisneros reformers decided to replace Pedrarius with uh, a new governor by the name of Lope de Sousa. Balboa was excited when he heard that news, and he wrote a hopeful letter to one of his friends who lived on Hispaniola uh, to discuss how Balboa presumed that uh, Sousa was going to reverse Pedrarius' decision to prevent Balboa from running Panama. And then he started to imagine that once he was governor of the province, he could start planning the invasion of Peru. Unfortunately for Balboa, Pedrarius intercepted that messenger. 
read the correspondence, became enraged. And perhaps as because as much as he was enraged at being replaced, as he was with Balboa, making plans to go ahead without him, he charged his son-in-law Balboa with treason. Samuel Eliot Morrison says that Pedrarius was jealous of his success and for that reason decided to do him in, accusing him of intending to cast off Spanish authority and set himself up as emperor of Peru. Vasco Nunez Balboa was seized by order of the governor. Along with several of his friends, he was tried and condemned to death on the charge of treason. Pedrarius did not allow Balboa to appeal the decision to the emperor or to the Council of the Indies. The day after he was sentenced, he was brought from his jail cell, proclaimed a traitor, and then Balboa and four of his companions were beheaded. Vasco Nunez's bleeding head, quote, bleeding head afterwards stuck ignobiously upon a pole, unquote. Balboa was 42 years at the date of his death, January 15th, 1519, and with him gone, any real hope of Castilla de Oro returning to prosperity went along with him. When Balboa ruled Tierra Firme, the Villa Santa Maria del Darien was finally situated as a Spanish base. It served the Spanish well, as they sought to find out what lay beyond the shores of the mainland. The harbor of the Gulf of Uraba was near the trade winds, which could take ships past Cartagena and from there to Santo Domingo and from there back into the Atlantic. In addition, numerous waterways uh, in, in the Isthmus gave the Spanish options to explore the interior by waterway instead of, say, marching through the jungle or swamp. There was a large Indian population, ample planting and fishing grounds, gold placers had been discovered in the nearby mountains, but over time, it became clear that both the both of the major rivers which fed into the Gulf of Uraba actually just led to dangerous places where the Chibchan there used poison arrows to defend themselves very successfully. Time and time again, Spanish ventures entered in disaster when they went towards Sino, for example, and time and time again, the search for Dabiba ended in failure. Major profits for the conquistadors were only found in the West. First, in the golden treasures of the Quaven principalities, and then in the discovery of the Pacific Pearl Islands. The founding of the town of Acla, which was about 50 or 60 miles west of Santa Maria, is kind of the first sign of Santa Maria's decline. In large part, that decline was specifically the result of Pedrarius's genocidal policies. They were exactly the same as the rule of conquistadors in the Caribbean. Darien's population, allied with the Spanish until Pedrarius' uh, arrival, was quickly exterminated after those slaves perished in mining camps and, uh, and, 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 and elsewhere, they were replaced by gangs of slaves from the interior of the Isthmus. Now, as the Spaniards continued to exterminate gangs of slaves, they continued to replace them from farther and farther away. By the end of Pedrarius' reign, the Spaniards were complaining that so few Indians remained that those who got land via repartimiento only, quote, received at most 90, others 50 or 40, unquote. Now, one would like to hope that a person like Pedrarius would get his due, but I'm not sure if he ever really did. After Pedrarius liquidated Balboa, he was generous 
with handing out land and slaves via repartimiento, because giving land and slaves away to conquistadors was a great way for Pedrarius to bind the allegiance of the men to him after what he had done. Pedrarius also moved his capital to the Pacific coast. He called the new city Panama. He figured that if he moved the government to the Pacific coast, that would give him plenty of time to wait out the new governor, Sosa, who, luckily for Pedrarius, was delayed for a year after being appointed before he finally started to make his way to the Americas. Like Pedrarius, Lope de Sosa was an old man, and he wasn't entirely thrilled with the offer to change his post from governor of the Canary Islands to governor of Castillo de Oro. But at any rate, the reason Pedrarius was so unpopular in Spain never really was his cruelty anyway. It was due to his irregular accounting methods. Few things got the attention of the Spanish government like irregular accounting methods. But Pedrarius escaped justice. Lope de Sosa died on arriving at Darien in June 1520. By that point, Spain had its hands full, internally for the next two years with something called the Comunero Revolt. Now, to make a long story short, if you have not taken a class on the history of Spain, it involved who a revolt over who would succeed Ferdinand and Isabella. Ferdinand, uh, excuse me, Pedrarius was free to remain in office and continue as he pleased which mainly involved continuing his genocide of the Chipchan. Pedrarius sent Espinosa out on another entrada. That expedition spent the next two months re-attacking a lot of the same Indian provinces he attacked on his first trip. Unlike Hispaniola, no official counts were made of native tributaries. There is no record of repartimientos, not and until Pedrarius gave allotments during the construction of Panama, in fact, the encomienda system was barely mentioned at all on Tierra Firm, I think it's likely that most slaves captured there were ultimately sold into the Caribbean, as opposed to divvied up out onto Tierra Firm. But the fate of the people who lived in what became Castilla de Oro, um, uh, uh, we're not 100% sure, it's otherwise it's very remarkably similar to what happened to the Taino. Likewise to the Taino, the destruction of the Chibchan at Darien occurred before the pandemics that swept through the Americas beginning in the 1520s. The Spanish wrote of a Maduro outbreak that occurred, which specifically affected the newcomers of precarious fleet, but no mention is made of pandemics such as smallpox or intermittent fevers and stuff like that, the intermittent fevers being the name Spanish had for malaria. I know I mentioned that last episode, but I'm saying it again. Now, on the other hand, the Spanish sources indicate that a lot of the same diseases that affected the Taino were also killing many Chibchan. In the mining camps, cholera and dysentery killed untold numbers. Pascal de Andagoya was one conquistador who arrived uh, to Darien on Petrarius's fleet who wrote of the slaving expeditions that went into the interior. Quote, the captains and men who left for those parts, the land being more healthful and more peopled, were accustomed to bring back large gangs of people and fetters and all the gold they could get and took it to Darien. This having been amassed and smelted, each received his share, as did the officials and the bishop, and also their share of the Indians. Since the captains were appointed by favor of those who governed, 
or relatives or friends. No one was punished, even if they had done great evil. In such a manner, the land suffered for more than a hundred leagues from Darien. All the captives brought, and they were in great number, arrived at Darien to be put into gold mines, of which there were good ones in the land. And as they came over so long a road, worn out and broken by the roads they, by the loads they carried, and the country differed from their own, all died. In these journeys, they never brought peace, nor did they settle but were interested only in bringing gold and Indians to Darien to be consumed there, unquote. And de Goya's letter essentially matches the reports made by Oviedo, Suazo, and Las Casas. Bishop Quevedo, who had married uh, unsuccessfully in an attempt to make peace between Petrarius and Balboa, um, married the two families together. He informed Ferdinand in 1515 that Quaven country consisted of 17 states, each was ruled by a cacique who had been at peace with the Spaniards and who lived on the isthmus east of Panama. The western side of the isthmus, he said, was ruled by the Coiba, who had even larger native states with larger populations and a greater food production. He estimated the population of Castillo de Oro between Coiba and Cuevan to have been about two million. He was in shock at the question he was left with at the end of his account of Tierra Firm. Quote, How so many people could have come to an end in so short a time? Unquote. After the founding of Panama, Pedrarius continued to let his captains and followers do as they pleased. A half century later, Castilla del Oro was empty as a result. By that point, there were only five or six Indian villages in the entire colony. Each had a population of about three or four hundred Indians. The population of these villages was, by that point, bolstered by the fact that roughly 3,000 escaped Africans were living in them as well. That's a story for a later time. A few small populations of the Chibcham, though, survived also by hiding out. Today, they continue to live on, in remote places, like the forests of the Bayano Basin, or a reservation on the Gulf of San Blas. As this native population was exterminated, Castilla de Oro underwent ecological changes as well. You might not expect it, but at the start of the 16th century, much of Central America was not rainforest or swamp or mountains, but savannas, made so purposefully by Chibchan farmers and hunters who used fire to shape the land, and that is why the Spanish were so keen on bringing cavalry with them to various parts of Central America, by the way. But since these savannas were not natural grasslands, they disappeared as the humans did. Both Indian settlements and Indian farms disappeared as they were abandoned. Within a few years of the arrival of, the gener of, of Europeans, Central America was mainly swallowed by forest, except for the lands around Panama, where uh, the needs of, of cattle and horses kept the savannas cleared. Now, nobody knows the reason exactly why Pedrarius chose a small fishing village as the site of the town that would be opposite to Acla on the Pacific coast of Tierra Firm. The village was called Panama, and it lacked resources, people, and a fair harbor. It also didn't even, in fact, have a good route to Acla. So perhaps Oviedo is right in his explanation. He claimed the reason Pedrarius selected Panama 
was because he hated the fact that Balboa built Akla and he didn't want it to connect to Akla. Oviedo said that because although Panama was, he said that, excuse me, Panama was not easy to get to from Akla or Santa Maria. Both had been built by Balboa. But it was relatively easy to get across the isthmus from Panama to the nearly completely abandoned Nombre de Dios, the old fort built by Diego Nisueza. In addition to Santa Maria essentially being abandoned by the move to Panama, Acla too was reduced to just a, couple, a few residents. The vast majority of Spanish Antierra firm moved to Panama, the new seat of government, since it was quite clear by this point that the wealth on the mainland would come from exploiting the Pearl Islands. Nombre de Dios too had a small population. It was really just a few men there at the fort, mainly there who wanted to, guys who worked at servicing the occasional ship that needed help, or who would try their luck at gold mining in the waterways nearby. Mainly unsuccessfully, I should add. Over time, in fact, the unsuccessful attempts at obtaining gold made that meant that Castillo de Oro dropped from use in favor of the new name Panama, which, as you'll recall, was that same name Pedrarius had once derided in an attempt to keep Malboa from governing the region. All told, by the opening of the 1520s, the Atlantic side of Tierra Firm was left in ruin. Much of the native population enslaved or killed, Pedrarius unpublished, unpunished, and the Spanish octopus moved on to carry out new depredations along the Pacific coast of the Americas and elsewhere. And before long, the entirety of, Span of the Spanish main, mainland and Caribbean alike, became really a backwater. Just nothing else than uh, a place near and helpful to own for the Spanish, the other more profitable uh, regions, a, a protective barrier, as it were, of realms like Mexico and New Spain, Peru and New Granada. At any rate, I think this makes, uh, this means this is a good time for us to stop. Um, next episode, we need to go farther south. We're going to talk about the discovery of Brazil, because if we don't talk about Brazil, then we can't talk about the voyage of Ferdinand Magellan. And with that said, if we're going to talk about the discovery of Brazil, we really need to talk about a little bit more about one of the most infamous characters in the beginning of the Atlantic history, Amerigo Vespucci. Anyway, all of that soon enough. But before we go, I, I'm still thinking about how I, you know, those Spanish dogs of war, you know, they were very important to this episode, especially Leon Ciso, Balboa's prized war dog, if you'll recall. Leon Ciso was poisoned. It isn't exactly clear when or how. And objectively speaking, it's likely that he was probably killed, I'd say, by a Chipchan warrior using a poison arrow in battle, uh, maybe around Dabiba. But now that you've heard this story, you know why I think it's possible that Pedrarius was the man who maybe killed Leonciso or ordered him to be poisoned. As it was, um, and that might have been just as likely as Leonciso being killed by a Chibchan arrow. Anyway, if I'm going to ans answer the question, what sort of man murders a dog? Well, Pedrarius. And let me tell you, I had this great rant, or so I thought. Now, what a utter piece of shit Pedrarius was. And 
the kind of horrific society that the Spanish are living in. But I deleted that rant about Pedrarius. Um, so if I hadn't done that, this would have been released last week, just so you know. But anyway, you see, the man he replaced and killed, Vasco Nunez de Balboa, I mean, he wasn't the nicest guy in the world, but he was, I think, the greatest conquistador in the history of Spanish conquistadors. And I think it should be telling to us what his end was, how he died, and even before his death. I think it's telling that he would be replaced by a man like Pedrarius. Pedrarius. See, Balboa was an exemplary figure in history, in my humble opinion, and I want to be clear. Balboa was ruthless. He would murder and torture and order those acts to be accomplished with the same casual attitude that you and I would order lunch. But at the same time, Balboa rises, morally rises above many of the, his more bloodthirsty compatriots. Balboa wasn't the sort of person who, for example, would collect human ears. He was above anything, I think, effective. By all accounts, a natural leader. He was apparently beloved by the Spaniards, of course, who knew him. Beyond that, though, he was beloved by many of the natives of Tierra Firm. So I, I think that's why it's important for us to know him. Because goddamn, as much as I cannot stand the conquistadors, they are men of action. The sort of guys who have things written about them. Guys who want to hear their story. So if we're going to celebrate any of the conquistadors. If we're going to talk about any conquistador in any sort of positive way, well, I think we really have to use Vasco Nunez de Balboa, he who succeeded on Tierra Firm, where others before him failed. The man who did more than find the South Sea for Spain. Maybe he didn't know it at the time, but he showed us in the future that the conquest of the Americas could have occurred in different ways than it did. The genocide of millions was not inevitable. It was a choice. A choice made by some of the worst men in history and the actions they took to create a new world built on working people to death on a massive scale in gold mines and plantations, diving for pearls under the sea. So anyway, with that in mind, I had this great rant about what a piece of shit Pedrarius was and what an awful society the Spanish had for taking the greatest soldier, the greatest soldier in Spanish society, they cut his fucking head off and put it on a fucking stick. Hey, I'm telling you, it was an epic rant. But there is a truth about stories. The truth about this story is that Balboa was the greatest soldier Spain had to offer. And what he got was murdered by his father-in-law and his bloody head on a stick at the age of 42. People don't always get what they deserve. Sometimes people get what they get. Sometimes good people get the short end of the stick. Bad people like Pedrarius get away with everything they do. I deleted my rant because while I was thinking about it, you know, I, I drive by and walk past homeless people every day. Many of them, as you know, they hold signs. They're asking for help. 
asking for help, asking for something, or explaining their situation sometimes. Sometimes, when I was driving by thinking about this rant, working on the end, I would see signs held by men or women who claim to be veterans of the armed forces. Soldiers and Marines who, for whatever reason, are on the street. Maybe they are addicted to heroin. Maybe they didn't have much family before they joined the military, and so then once they got out, they didn't really have a support structure. I don't know. Maybe they're just fucking lazy. Who knows what bad choices they made. And maybe some are just straight-up bad people. I'll be honest, I rarely give anything more than a polite smile when I see homeless people. Sometimes I pointedly ignore them. If you live in a city in the United States, I'm sure you can relate. There are homeless people on the street corner. Every street corner, it seems, doesn't it? Well, the truth about stories, my friends, and the truth about this story, is that I know what happened to Vasco Nunez de Balboa, the greatest soldier in Spain. So I think it would be awfully presumptuous of me now to assume it would be impossible for a great great man to be on the streets of Denver do you agree? I don't know. Anyway, uh, this morning I did something I've never done before. I signed up to volunteer at a homeless shelter here in Denver, Colorado. Next week I'm going to help serve a meal to those in need. Um, not under any illusions that I'm going to change the world or anything, but I'm going to keep serving that meal. I'm going to do it once a month. It's going to take three hours of my time. That's three hours of my time, once a month. And who knows? If I'm lucky, I might just get the honor of serving a meal to an American hero. Anyway, I encourage you to join me. Until next time, friends. And may your doggos always be as well-behaved as Leon Ciso. And what I say, the captain is a tyrant and I no longer obey. I'm sick of taking orders from the madman in command. So let's stop him on an island and leave him in the sand. Cause it's a mutiny. It's a mutiny. It's a mutiny. And I will take it over the ship. It's a mutiny. What's happening here? You're no longer in control, and we're drinking up your beer. This is now a democratic, egalitarian pirate ship. So enjoy your trip, 'cause it's a mutiny.
Ship. <laughs>